Welcome coming in, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Jones Report. Tyler Jones here with you. So glad to have you with us. Coming up on today's show, going to be joined by Matt Zimmick as we're going to be talking all things college football as well as the latest with the French Open and Naomi Osaka dropping out of that and talk about that situation and the retirement of Coach K. Plus, later on in the show, we'll have Coach Bo's Football Fix presented by O'Connor Advisory Group for all the latest happenings around the National Football League. And, of course, we'll have our Tom Fulbery Story of the Week at the end of the show as well. Thomas Bridges joins me right now. Tom, how are we doing? Oh, you know, Jones just uh, gearing up for a pretty busy weekend, so just doing doing a lot of work. I mean, you know what I thought about Jones, and 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 as a news guy, you know this uh, because you don't you don't get holidays off per se. I mean, you could be like our buddy Harold Coons and dress in a tuxedo, but uh, you know what Harold really should start doing. This is a little side note, a little tangent. Harold dresses in a black tux for new year's eve we love harold on this show at least i do and I, I i kid i know you do too but really memorial day if he has to work he should dress in a white tux because so, you know after memorial day you can wear white right i did right? work i did work memorial day um but you didn't tell me this ahead of time i would have done it if you would have given me the idea i was all ears maybe we'll get you in a maybe we'll get you in a beige shoot suit for uh labor day maybe so um but yeah i mean the work i don't even know why they give you it off you know and in, in the corporate world they the work just piles up sure you can have the day off but the next day the work you still have to do it it just never stops so it's a busy week this week so we're knocking it you know going ahead and knocking out the show even a little bit earlier than we usually do um you know last week we did a little bit later this week we're doing a little bit earlier. It's a busy month. It's it is. welcome to June. It is as we continue halfway through the year. Can you believe? Oh yeah, we continue with the summer of Jones in the month of June. Had a uh, great birthday weekend, by the way. Thanks to everybody for all the birthday wishes. I can honestly say this was the best birthday weekend I've ever had, and uh, it was great to see friends and family and have them in town and such and. Just really enjoyed it and loved all the uh, outreach people uh, making me feel good. Uh, all the love uh, the last couple of days. Certainly uh, appreciate it. And on that front, uh, it was a weekend uh, full of palms being sweaty and mom's spaghetti, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> but, and, and we're off and running and uh, got a few travels uh, along the way now. That's the, that's, that's the next portion of my, my summer, Tom. Now that the birthday has passed uh it's about to get crazy a little cray cray around here here in omaha over these next couple of weeks we got the olympic swim trials that are going to go on the next two weekends then i'm off to uh i'm off to dallas next weekend to uh go to the nascar all-star race and hang out with our buddy david star and uh then uh, a few weeks after that i'll be going to tampa for a little family vacay and and uh, a lot of great things ahead over these uh, next few weeks. And, of course, College World Series uh, as well here in Omaha. It is going to be a special time these uh, next few weeks, that's for sure. By the way, shout out our buddy David. Uh, he made his uh, Cup Series debut this past weekend in the Coca-Cola 600. Uh, and uh, great to see him out there. So uh, the uh, Tyler Jones Media Group contingency well represented with uh, – 
with David in the 66 car in the Cup Series. And uh, when we go to the race in Texas in a couple of weeks, uh, I don't know if this has been officially announced or if I'm breaking news or not, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway, Tom. David's going to do double duty. He's going to run the Xfinity and the Cup race, run that all-star race weekend. So uh, we'll be on the race car for those races, and I'll get to be out there with uh, David running the uh, Cup race, uh, the all-star race that weekend. So pretty cool stuff here, uh, what's ahead over these next few weeks. Yeah, with all this rain that, you know, northern Texas and Oklahoma's had, hopefully not getting rained out. Uh, Knock on wood. Knock on wood, but that should be pretty fun. Yeah. Um, hopefully good weather. Get down there. You'll get to be around Whataburger. I mean, you'll be right in the midst of it. There's a Whataburger across the street from the racetrack, and I think the over-under needs to be set at like three times on how many appearances I will make to the Whataburger there across the street. It's got to be a breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Oh, it has to be, right? I mean, the taquitos – Honestly, are just as good as anything else. I usually get the cheese and egg taquito. Oh my goodness! And I'm not too far from a water burger here in Tulsa. I mean, I that sounds. I got to be good. I got. I'm going to Mexico here soon. I got to be good. I, I can't. It. I can't just do it on a whim. Yeah. Um, let's go ahead, Tom, and uh, get started with the NBA playoffs today. And at the time we're taping this, the Los Angeles Lakers are one game away from elimination in the first round of the playoffs. They were the favorites in the West entering this whole ordeal, despite being the number seven seed and watching what went down in game five. LeBron played okay. Anthony Davis was hurt, did not start. And the team just looked so unmotivated, so lackluster, uninterested in that game. I get it. LeBron can't carry that team by himself, that he's got to have some help of some sorts. And when one guy goes down, it's got to be the next man up. But my goodness, what an egg did they lay? And I loved every minute of it. I mean, that was fantastic to see the uh, Lakers struggle like that for the Suns to come out the way they did. And, you know, Chris Paul fighting off injuries, still continuing to battle. Devin Booker, was phenomenal. I mean, folks, this Suns team is legit. And this is awesome to see. I love it. Uh, I would love to see the Lakers get eliminated. I'm sure Adam Stern wouldn't like to see that. But nonetheless, uh, I think this has been very exciting. And, you know, the the Lakers still, though, you know, it, it feels like in the same sense, Tom, of, you know, Alabama, when you talk college football, that, okay, they might take their lumps along the way, but they're still Alabama. They're still going to, you know, be in contention until they're absolutely out of it. The Lakers down 3-2, and Anthony Davis probably not going to play in game six. I'm still not ruling the possibility of them winning the next two games out. They very well could, but they certainly have their work cut out for them at this point. Phoenix, as much as this – is being made about the Lakers and the Lakers struggles. Phoenix deserves a lot of credit, in particular Chris Paul, for what they've done. Monty Williams has done a terrific job coaching this team to get to this point. Jones, that was a good old-fashioned ass-whooping. And, you know, as a non-Lakers fan, I think everybody but the Lakers was happy to see that. 
I mean, it, did, it, it felt vindictive for the Suns, really. It just felt like all these shit years, finally, this is our time to shine, and they took it. They were up 30 at half uh, and did not look back. And I was really scared that LeBron was going to lead a comeback, take game five, and be up 3-2. It was halftime. I was like, don't let this happen, Suns. Don't you do it. And they pulled through and and finished it off, put the cherry on top. Um, and so now, sure, back to L.A. for game six, um, you know. But the Suns, I think, can do it. I think we can finish this series off 4-2. Uh, I mean, with that veteran leadership that Chris Paul has, granted he's not in the best of health, um, I think they can do it. And I, I'm, I'm saying that, hopefully. Um, but for the most part, I, I think they have a pretty good shot to do it, Jones. Um, you know, especially if Anthony Davis isn't playing. Uh, I mean, I would like to see nothing more than the Suns come out and just, you know, put the final nail in the coffin and, and oust LeBron. I don't think LeBron's ever been beaten the first round. Yeah, not that I can recall. Uh, maybe early on in his career of some sorts. But, you know, Tom, credit to the Suns for what they're doing. But the story of this is the Los Angeles Lakers. And to see what happened in game five for them to look so out of sorts, um, you know, Frank Vogel, I think, has coached poorly, coached poorly throughout this and done a bad job. Um, you know, there's got to be some blame on Frank Vogel. Um, LeBron, you know, he, he's done his part. He hasn't been 100%. I don't put this on LeBron at all. Um, but those guys around him, for them not to step up, for them not to, uh, you know, embrace the opportunity, their moment here. I mean, th there's going to be some big changes, I think, coming to this Los Angeles team uh, come next year. Uh, they're they're going to have to have some – to make have to make some big moves of some sorts because this this to me feels like okay even if the Suns are the better team there's no excuse for the performance they put together for the lack thereof of effort from this Lakers team I mean it's just unacceptable here I mean there's some blame to go around it's um, you know I'm not one trying to you know pump up the Lakers here and 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 rooting them on at all one bit but. Uh, what they threw out there was, was so embarrassing. I, I don't know if you're a Laker fan, how you can be satisfied and think that a healthy team would have been any better. Uh, it, it would have been championship caliber. That did not look like a team wanting to win a championship. There was just no desire there. No, there was no desire at all. Um, and, you know, I mean, I looked at the stats. Caldwell Pope, not worth the damn. Kyle Kuzma, not worth the damn. Uh, Caruso, not worth a damn. Uh, I mean, there was like five others that played at least 10 minutes that didn't get a single point or didn't really do anything. I mean, I think Kuzma had 21 minutes and got five points or something like that. It's like, that's not going to work. Uh, I mean, there was just no heart. And, you know, sometimes you see these teams that say, hey, we won it last year. What's the big deal? You know, whatever. I mean – Think about, you know, okay, here's the, here's the deal, and I would be tied up into this. I can't lie. Corona's – I'm not going to say Corona's over. I don't want to get death threats to any, for, from anybody. Um, 
But if you think about it, Corona's on the way out. Um, obviously, like I said, I'm going to Mexico. Uh, you get your vaccine. Now, maybe, who was it, LeBron? And there was one other player that maybe didn't come out and say they had it. Maybe Schroeder was the other one. Yeah. So, okay, whatever. But at the same time, you got all this money. You didn't really get to go anywhere do party up big last year. Now, everything's opened back up. Okay, hell, we won it last year. So what? Well, you know, we did it for Kobe. You know, did it for Kobe. That's last year. We're good to go. We don't need to do anything now. We might as well just, we're good. We brought one back. Lakers got another one. You know, let somebody else. That's what it looks like to me. Looks like a team that just really doesn't give a shit. It's not that they can't do it. It looks like a team that doesn't care. Yeah, and it's the complete opposite of Phoenix. Phoenix, you can see Chris Paul and those guys laying it out on the line every single play, the effort, the energy that's there. Devin Booker, his first time in the playoffs and all. Credit where credit's due for Phoenix for having the heart, with having the intestinal fortitude here. And for Phoenix going forward, you know, not many people thought they had a shot in this series, let alone how far they'd go in the Western Conference. If you're Phoenix and pull this off, Tom, then there's got to be no ceiling for this Phoenix team at that point. If you can beat the Lakers, then if you're the Phoenix Suns, you got to be saying to yourselves, why not us? Why can't they win the Western Conference? Why can't they go to the NBA Finals? If they beat the defending champs here, then they certainly can't be taken lightly. You got to watch out for this Phoenix team uh, going forward if you're not already. Yeah, and it's you know it's going to give them some some umph, some more umph than they already have. I'm like, okay, you're the Phoenix Suns, and you just took down the Lakers, and we really haven't seen anything to this magnitude from the Suns uh, since like it was Steve Nash, Sean Marion, and Myers Stoudemire days. Uh, you know. We haven't seen this in a long time. So, you, I mean, if you're a Suns fan, you got to be hyped for one. Two, uh, you know, if you just take down the Lakers, this almost feels like it's 2003 all over again. Um, I mean, why not? You know, the, I, I think at that point, you got to get back in the locker room after you hopefully secure this game six. You don't want to go to game seven against LeBron. I think it's very imperative they just go ahead and do it now. I mean, they have to, in my mind, you just go ahead and knock that out of the park. Just get it done and over with. Look forward to the next one because that's the last thing I want to be doing is playing game seven, even in Phoenix, against LeBron James. Uh, I don't care if he's 100 years old. Um, but they do that. Then you got to get back in the locker room and say, hey, why not us? Why not? Right. Um, and and I, I think they will. Um, and I, I think they have to get to that point where they say, hey, we can do this. Um, and, you know, you, you take down the Lakers, defending champs. Yeah, they haven't played as good this year as they did last year, but it's a whole new ball game. How about the uh, Nuggets and Trailblazers? That game on Tuesday night, that was the best game I've seen all season. Double overtime. The Nuggets almost got screwed in the fourth quarter when Damian Lillard was able to get that foul called when there was no contact. And I didn't have a dog in this fight, Tom. But once that happened, I was saying to myself, all right, I hope Denver pulls this off here. I'd hate to see them get screwed out of a win because of a bad call. 
And the way Damian Lillard was playing, I mean, there's only a few guys that you can name on one hand in NBA history that at certain moments you just look at them and when they take a shot, you know what's going in. The Ray Allens, the Reggie Miller types, um, Steph Curry. I mean, there's they're few and far between. And Damian Lillard on Tuesday nights, and I don't know how many people saw it because it was on the, the NBA TV HD or whatever. You know, I, I saw it. I found it. But uh, it, it was in no man's land for a lot of people trying to find the game. But nonetheless, um, Lillard was just amazing. Every time he touched that ball, it was going in. He had that shooter's touch going. Didn't matter where he was shooting from. He was just electric, 55 points. And yet Portland still lost. And, and Jokic, this guy is going to win the MVP, and half the country is still going to be saying to themselves, who? Who's Jokic? Not have any idea who he is. Um, and he was unreal. 38 points, 11 rebounds, 9 assists. He had one play in particular where he passed it out to Michael Porter Jr. for, for three, and it was one of the most beautiful passes I've ever seen. And I'm like, man, this guy's – got handles like a guard of some sorts. I mean, just unbelievable. Incredible game. You're starting to sound like Bill Walton. Yeah. I mean, uh, I can't describe it. You know I mean? I, I get a <laughs> brush up my leg when I watch Jokic play. You know what I mean? like I'm waiting for you to start calling him dead left shrimp. <laughs> I mean, it, it, was, it was unbelievable. And Denver pulled it off. Michael Porter Jr. had a nice bounce back after playing a terrible game four. He comes back with 26 points. Um, You know, how about Monte Morris, too, the former Iowa State product? 28 points off the bench. And, man, is he something else. I mean, this Denver team, up 3-2 in this series. This was one of those games, Tom, that somebody had to lose. Uh, I was glad that I got to see it. But – it's uh, – that's what playoff basketball is all about. I wish there was more games like that. That was an all-time classic. I'm going to remember exactly where I was for that game. That's how good it was. I'll be talking about this game years down the road. Yeah, it was that good. And, man, I tell you what, and I've felt this way for a long time um, about this certain player, and I, I felt – I've just felt, like, bad. And, you know, they never really played the Spurs, so I never really had a – a hate for them. They've never really had a an onus out for my team ever. Um, I mean, I really maybe my second favorite team in the Western Conference. It might be the Portland Trailblazers. I love Damian Lillard, and I that sucks. He always, for some reason, seems like on the shit end of the deal. Um, I mean, whether that be snubbed from multiple All Star games. Or that be just under the radar of obviously Curry being just right down the road from him, um, playing in the tough Western Conference. I never felt that he got the respect he deserved, and a lot of players shouted him out last night on Twitter. But still, just putting up all those points and having that hell of a game, and still coming up short. Uh, and he even said it himself, he's like, "Man, it doesn't matter. We lost the game." And I'm just like, "Dally, he's he's like the." I don't know. He's like if Russell Westbrook had an alter ego or maybe vice versa. They're to me, they're one and the same as far as heart goes. And I just hate that for Damian Lillard. I was rooting on the Blazers. I don't have necessarily anything against Denver either. Um, but that that was one of the games I hated to see either team lose. 
I really wish this was uh, the finals. I mean, these are the two teams that I, if, if the Spurs aren't going to be in it, I like these two teams the most. So, you know, you got Denver that's just always perennially a dark horse. And then you got the Trailblazers who seem to be like, the oh, this is the year we got, you know, we got, maybe we got a squad. And then somehow always end up on the, on the you know, the other side of it. Um, and it's just like, well, you know, you said it, one of these teams had to win, uh, you know, it had to go one way or another. And it, you know, just so happened that it was Denver's turn to win. So I, I could see this series going seven, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, Denver's in the driver's seat. They should win this, uh, going forward here, but man, uh, what, a, what an effort by Damian Lillard, Dame time. Um, if, if he wasn't a first ballot hall of famer already, Tuesday night, he became one with that performance. Even in a loss, that was one where he deserved a standing ovation and everything. I mean, it, it, I was just in awe with what Damian Lillard put he, together. That was he, fun to watch. He sticks with the Blazers. He's going to be on that list. Unfortunately, I'll call it now. He's going to be on that list of greatest to never win a ring. Mm, yeah. He's going to be on that list with Carmelo. He's going to be on that list with Allen Iverson. It's going to be on that list of Charles Barkley. That's just how it's going to be. Um, how about this? A uh, couple more in the West for you. We're, uh, we're taping this before the Mavs-Clippers game that's coming up tonight. But that series tied at two games apiece. Tom, uh, the Clippers were down 2-0, and they responded nicely here. Um, what, what do you make of this series? Uh, I, I hope Dallas can pull it off, but – it looks like that Ty Lue and company made some adjustments. Even if you go back to that game on Friday night, uh, you know, they get off to such an awful start to that game. And, you know, Kawhi Leonard looked like he was, you know, just so MIA. You probably need to put him on a milk carton or something. Then all of a sudden something clicked, something came alive. They have been a different team since the second half of game three. Yeah, they have, and I don't. I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if they said, "Hey, well, it's either we win this series or this whole team breaks up." I don't know who had the speech in the locker room, but somebody had one, um, and it obviously did something. And and I really, you know, we we talk about we're taping it before tonight's game. Uh, I think it's going to come down to who wins tonight. I really do. Um, I wouldn't be shocked to see whoever you know whoever takes this game. Um, takes the series that it's usually how it comes down. I forget the percentage, but I think like 60% of the time or like 63% of the time, the winner of game five wins the series. Maybe it might be higher than that. Um, so I like whoever wins tonight to go ahead and win the series. Dallas is still young. Um, you know, you got Rick Carlisle, great coach. I think he can pull it off. I'd love to see Dallas do it. I would love to see them do it uh, for more reasons than just, you know, liking Luka Doncic, you know. Obviously, you know my you know my beef with the Clippers, and so does everybody else that listens to this show even once we a went month. We through that last week. Oh, yeah. Right. The, the, Clippers are, the Clippers are like coleslaw to me. They're barbecue chicken. I like barbecue chicken. Dallas is barbecue chicken. The Clippers are the trash-ass potato salad. Your great aunt brings to the cookout. Aunt B? No, Aunt B can cook. She's the one cooking the barbecue chicken. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. 
How about the uh, Jazz and Grizzlies? Uh, again, we're taping this uh, before that game occurs, that game five. I would be shocked if Utah does not win that game. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it was a good run for Memphis to even get in the postseason, what they did in those play-in tournament games, and then win game one here. Utah, this is a, a really good basketball team. Quinn Snyder has done a phenomenal job uh, keeping them intact, keeping them in focus, even after all that went down last year with uh, with Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell being on, you know, not the same page and such. Uh, to get to this point, I, I think Utah is still the team to beat in the Western Conference. I like what they've put together here. Uh, but this isn't the sexy pick by any means. Uh, you know, th- this – this jazz team has the makings of uh, NBA TV uh, all over them. I think they're on NBA TV tonight, actually. Um, but nonetheless, I like what Utah's putting together, Tom, uh, here in this postseason. I mean, yeah, if, if it's the Phoenix Suns versus the Utah Jazz in the Western Conference Finals, if, if the NBA could put that whole series on NBA TV, I think they'd try to. <laughs> right. The announcer series. The announcers would be stuck in a studio. They wouldn't be allowed to go to the game. You know, they'd be serving, uh, uh, you know, pickles on nachos at the game, all that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not what the NBA wants. But right now, the way it's looking might be what the NBA is going to get. Um, I don't know what that's going to do for ratings. Um, you know, it might make me even perk up more than I usually am to see that. Just because it's a change of pace, thank God. And, and I hate to say it, but it's not, you know, I'm going to add this in. I hate to say it, but it's not the Lakers. It's freaking not the Warriors. Uh, and it's not the Spurs in the Western Conference. You know, it's like, golly. Like, right. thank God. Like, something different, finally. Like, a team that was shit however many years ago. The, I mean, trust the process. You really want to trust the process. We might have a Suns-Sixers finals. Yeah, we very well could. Uh, let's move on to the East now. The uh, Nets win that series in five games, 123-109 uh, in a game five for Brooklyn. As uh, we saw James Harden go off for 34 points, Kyrie Irving for 25, Kevin Durant for 24. Seems like those three are finally coming together. This was the first time all year we've seen they're starting five in place, and they looked fine. Uh, there was uh, a few rough spots here and there, but not many. Uh, the, the Nets looked like a complete basketball team. They're going to be just fine. And, you know, they if they weren't already, they're the favorites to, to win the whole dang thing. Meanwhile, um, the more interesting story, I think, is not who won that series in Brooklyn. Uh, we know they're good. We already knew that beforehand. Um, and the story that's been following them all season long. But the Boston Celtics, you lose this series. I get it that Kimball Walker hasn't been playing well. I get it that uh, you didn't have uh, Jalen Brown in this series either, that he was out and such. But this Celtics team, you know, the roster just wasn't there. Danny Ainge did not take advantage of all those draft picks he's had to, to assemble a great roster there in uh, Boston. And – because of it, he's out of a job now. And Brad Stevens takes over as president of basketball, uh, president of basketball operations. And that was a surprising move to me. I didn't know that Brad Stevens wanted to leave coaching to move up to the front office. That's, that wasn't something I saw coming. That was a woge bomb that 
really came out of nowhere, but apparently he's talked about it for quite some time. Um, now in, in Brad Stevens case, you know, he turned what was the worst year the Celtics had in a long time to promotion of sorts. Now, when the news came out about Coach K, and we're going to talk about Coach K just a bit, immediately, you know, your thought was, oh, maybe that's why Brad Stevens took this job was maybe he's going to go replace Coach K. But now we hear that uh, one of Coach K's longtime assistants is going to be his successor there. Um, I would have to think, Tom, the only logical reason I can come up with for Brad Stevens making this move, um, we knew they were getting rid of Danny Ainge anyway, that that was going to happen. But in Brad Stevens' case, by moving to this front office role, whenever the college job that he wants comes up, he doesn't have to worry about, well, we're in the middle of the season with the Celtics. You can leave a basketball ops job to go be head coach of a major college program or to be uh, an NBA coach again. I think this gives him some leeway to really put Pat, put forward his future. I highly doubt that Brad Stevens isn't coaching again. We will see him coach again at some point, but now he gets to step back and kind of navigate his future. Does he want to ride with the Celtics? Um, does he want to go be a college coach? Does he want to take on a better NBA job of some sorts? Now this gives him some, some thinking space of sorts to uh, figure out what he wants to do next. I think that's what this is really all about. Yeah, I think so too. And, and I, I, I think they kind of just were like, well, you know, Brad, try your hand at this and, and let's see. And you know what? I wouldn't be surprised to see, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be su- shocked to see that this happened to some other NBA coaches, um, you know, maybe later on. I mean, they, number one, you, you think of maybe Eric Spolstra, maybe moving up to that GM role eventually, uh, maybe even Pop moving in the GM role. Um, for for San Antonio um, and letting like a Becky Hammond take over, be interesting to see who the Boston Celtics get um, to you know get get that next realm in. I mean, it was time for change in Boston for sure. Um, Danny Ainge, I mean, we knew that was coming uh, unless they had you know out flat out made a run, won the finals, but um, you know. Obviously, Brad Stevens is going to be there to help guide whoever comes in um, to help coach. And, and, you know, back to the point of saying, hey, wouldn't be shocked to see this happen to some other coaches um, that might, you know, move up a level and, and, and kind of help another coach take the range and kind of be a, a mentor of sort. And, you know, Brad Stevens is not at the age where he has to become a mentor. He could be a great coach for any other NBA team. Uh, hell, if Pop hung it up, I would welcome him with – open arms to San Antonio if it wasn't going to be Becky Hammond or, you know, maybe even James Borrego that's doing really good things in Charlotte right now. Um, so that being said, I mean, it'll be really interesting who they bring in. And, uh, you know, all that being said, I still think Brad Stevens will have some sort of influence over what goes on in Boston, not only at the GM level, um, obviously, but at the head coaching level as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, you know, you, you look at some of the names that have been thrown out there for this Boston Celtics job. Um, it's not the most impressive list of those that, uh, that are being looked at uh, for uh, who could be the next Celtics head coach of those that have 
uh, come to mind already, uh, you know, of, of who could be the next head coach there uh, who's thrown out. Uh, you've seen uh, a number of guys from like Jason Kidd to Lloyd Pierce. If that is going to be the direction that uh, Brad Stevens is going to go, then his time as a president of basketball operations will not last very long. Um, Jason Kidd is not a good head coach. We've already seen that experiment fail twice. And, uh, I mean, let, let's just face it. I mean, that's, that is – you might as well – if that's going to be what Brad Stevens does – then that to me is even more of an indication that he's on his way out the door, that he's just going to, that he's throwing in the towel and, and trying to figure out his next move. If he really wants to throw Jason Kidd out there to be the next head coach. I mean, who else is out there? I mean, who I'm trying to think of any names that, that ring a bell. And unfortunately I, I guess I follow more of the player free agency than the coaching carousel, to be honest. Uh, and I think a lot of us do that, but rightfully so, but, I mean, who else? I mean, the obviously, I'm more focused on my own team's next coach because Pop is could be, you know, my grandpa at this point. Um, and so you think Becky Hammond's a name that's got thrown out there. James Borrego is one of the more recent coaches that made the transition from assistant to head coach for Charlotte. Con you know, coincidentally came from the Spurs too, but uh, just Pat Moan back there. But that being said, who else is out there? Who who sticks out? Who's who's a, a who's moving the needle? I don't. It's just, it's kind of like the housing market right now. Unless you're selling, it's not a good time to buy. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's nobody out there right now that's moving the needle. Uh, Brad Stevens, great coach. Um, you know, I know the Celtics have not lived up to expectations, but I don't think that takes away from from. Uh, Brad Stevens being a great coach. I don't think there's a coach out there that's going to be a, uh, quote, free agent, quote, out there that's going to be able to do a better job than Brad Stevens could do. I really don't. Not better than Brad Stevens, I agree, but better than uh, than the likes of Jason Kidd? Absolutely, there there would be better coaches. I mean, yeah, but they're, they're, to me, I, don't, I mean, there's not anybody – I mean, obviously, I wouldn't put Jason Kidd. I think that's just a big name. But, I mean, they, they might pursue him, but I don't think it's going to go the way they want to. Yeah, I mean, Sam Castell, um, his name's been mentioned. Um, and he was for the Rockets. But, I mean, you know, mentioned out there last year. I mean, so, that, I mean, that's, Sam, a good, I would go, that's a good – I think the, the best option would be go get Jawan Howard from Michigan. Um, yeah. Jawan's an NBA guy. He did a great job with this Michigan program already. And they've brought in some legit NBA talent there, developed some NBA players there in Michigan. Jawan Howard would probably be my first phone call if I'm Brad Stevens. It'd be interesting enough. I mean, I don't think it'd be a bad phone call. Yeah. Uh, he's been doing good at Michigan. Um, you know, obviously the past couple of years, I, I would definitely make that phone call before I'd call Jason Kidd. <laughs> That's no slot on Jason Kidd. I mean, he just already had his try, and it just obviously we saw that went. So yeah. Um, how about the uh, the Wizards and the Sixers? Uh, that one uh, coming up tonight as we're taping this. Uh, the Sixers already had a, a three-one series lead there um, for the uh, the Sixers. You get past. Washington here 
Now what? How are we feeling about this uh, this Sixers team right now, Tom? I, I I still need to see more. I don't think that they're better than Brooklyn or Milwaukee, who we're going to see in the next round here. The way it shapes out of those two meeting in the conference semifinals, I still think the winner of Milwaukee. Brooklyn wins the Eastern Conference. I think both those teams are better than Philly right now. What say you? I think so, too. And, and that's kind of been an all-season deal. And maybe we're not getting enough credit. I, I think we're giving credit where credit's due. And I think we just need to change the city of Philly to Seymour. Just call them the Seymour Sixers. Um, because it's it's just it, – I don't know. It's, it doesn't feel right. Uh, it doesn't feel right to give them that much credit. Um, and, you know – on paper, I feel okay saying that. And we'll find out soon enough. But it's just like, well, it doesn't – something's not right about it. And I don't know what it is. Uh, maybe we're wrong. Maybe they win the damn championship. Well, and you look at – But the, right now, it doesn't feel good. You look at the Bucks, Tom, with the size that they have to go up against the Nets um, and the way that – you know, that, that some of their guys have been playing. I mean, obviously that they're going to need Chris Middleton to step up and such. Um, I think the Bucs can take the Nets to seven games. They're going to go at least six. I think that's going to be a challenge. It's no, it's not going to be a walk in the park for Brooklyn. I don't think. I mean, I agree. I, I think they can, I think they have the personnel to, to be able to do that. I think Giannis causes enough of a fuss to be able to take that to seven. Um, be interesting to see if we see a James Harden choke, but you know, he's got two backups there to, to help him out. I, I think, I think overall, I think the Nets will be just fine, but I could see it being a, a neck and neck type situation there. Yeah. Yeah. Very well. Good. Uh, Hawks and Knicks, the other one in that series there. And uh, looks like the Hawks are in good shape to uh, take care of business. And the story for this one, Tom, I think is when you talk about, years down the road and looking at what Atlanta is doing. They bring in Nate McMillan halfway through the season to be their interim head coach that does an outstanding job after having runs in Indiana and Portland and Seattle. I've always been a Nate McMillan fan. I think he's a really good head coach. He's just kind of been on the wrong end of the stick sometimes, uh, you know, getting blamed for stuff that wasn't his fault. Now he turns around this Atlanta team and they've had a really good year. They look like, you know, they're headed to the next round. Um, Trey Young's played really good basketball here this year. Um, I, I, for Atlanta, I know that they're not going to go past these semifinals, but the step they took this year compared to where they were at at this point a year ago, watch out. I mean, that team is on the rise. I think if if you're looking for, you know, one of the, one of the big stories of this postseason, I think is the new kids on the block, the – the Phoenixes of the world and and Atlanta, I think, is a big part of that. They're, I think the future is very bright for the Hawks here, and and this playoffs has been a, a nice uh, coming out party for them, so to speak. It very well could be. I mean, I don't think they make it past the second round, but I'll tell you what, I thought I thought the direction you were going is that a few years ago, if you remember, the Utah Jazz played the OKC Thunder and which was just a heated matchup. God, I mean, every game was just, it was personal. It was personal. And I'll tell you what, and I, and, and if OKC wouldn't have blown it up uh, and, and maybe kept some of it together, if it went the way they wanted it to, if Kawhi wasn't a snake and lured old PG out of it and had it all blown up. Um, then 
I had called that as a future, you know, a rivalry of sorts. I'll tell you what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen is Knicks and Hawks, for as long as Julius Randle's in New York City and as long as Trey Young is in Atlanta, that is going to be a rivalry. Yes. I mean, that one game did it. And it's there's the bad blood is already running deep. I love it. Yeah. And I think I I really do think the NBA loves that type of shit. I think they do. I think I mean rightfully so. They I mean they'll let it fly. It's where Um, amazing happens. I mean, it's it's where Trey Young needs to call Bosley's hair restoration. Yeah, certainly. Uh, last thing on the playoffs, then we'll move on and talk Coach K real quick. Um, fan behavior has been a bit out of control the last week or so. We've seen things just go way over the top. I get it. Fans were out of the building for over a year, uh, and we weren't seeing big crowds of sorts, and that you know stuff that would have – you know, happened in the last year or so, kind of all happened all at once, you know, catching up for time, I guess. But no excuse. I mean, this is a bit too much here. I mean, these fans are, uh, you know, we're we're talking about just one instance away from somebody getting seriously hurt and somebody having an issue here. I mean, this is uh, is getting a little out of control, Tom. Uh, the, The league and security, uh, they need to get their stuff together because somebody's going to get hurt if they don't do something otherwise. Right. Listen, I love the Spurs, but I would never run out on the court or throw a a water bottle at someone's head. Popcorn. Yeah, I would never, like, get it together. And trust me, I've been drunk off my ass at an NBA game. It's, to be honest, been hammered. Uh, I would never even think about doing that. I mean, it's like, come on. Like, for one, you think you're going to get away with it? No. Second off, you're banned for life. Um, Second off, I I guarantee you any of these people that run out on the court or throw a water bottle or throw popcorn or spit on you, they're not going to want to throw hands with one of these NBA players. There's no way. Yeah. I mean – Maybe that's what they want to get out of it. I mean, if you wanted to get your ass kicked by uh, a, a, a guy that works out every day and is a, a freak of an athlete, sure. But uh, maybe that's not that's not my vibe. Yep. I'm with him. I'm with him. Um, real quick, uh, before we uh, get to Matt Zimmick and uh, talk about a few things with him, I want to uh, touch on Coach K and his retirement. Uh, what, a, what a great career for Coach K, winning all those national titles he did at Duke, winning more games than anybody in college basketball, starting off with him first, Tom. He's the greatest to ever do it, plain and simple. I mean, you, you bring up John Wooden or Dean Smith or some of the other you know, greats of college basketball coaching, Bobby Knight. Um, Coach K is on another level, and he did it for decades did it in all sorts of different eras of basketball, the way the game changed. And, you know, sometimes he had, you know, rosters of, of, you know, all, you know, juniors and seniors, non-NBA guys. Sometimes he had the one and done types, whatever it may be. Uh, Coach K adapted. He made it work. 
And, I mean, it was, it was just phenomenal. I mean, Coach K was great. And to do it at Duke, which, you know, they'd been to a couple Final Fours in the 60s well before he got there, but didn't have blue blood status before he showed up. To turn Duke into one of the top three or four programs in the country by himself, just monumental. And then you add in what he did with the Olympic team, bringing them back from the dead to – uh, have the Redeem team to win gold in 2008 in Beijing and what he's done with the USA basketball program since then. Um, it is hard to find a better career in coaching than what Coach K put together. And to do it at the college level, you know, he got paid all the money he wanted to, got to run his operation, do things his way, play in a historic venue like Cameron Indoor. Um, I think there's a lot of coaches maybe almost all coaches, at least, you know, within the top 1% um, of coaches that people wish that they could be. If they could trade places and have the career of Coach K, they would do so. Uh, it's really just hard to put into words just the, the greatness that, that Coach K was to not only do not only college basketball, but really to the entire game of basketball. Um, and we always talk about, all the time, you know, around here, so-and-so leaves, they'll be missed. I don't think anyone's going to miss Coach K. I think they're going to get tired. They're, they're, they're tired of getting their, their butts kicked by Coach K. They're, they're glad to see him finally hanging up in that sense, much to the same degree in college football. We'll all be smiling when we get our sport back when uh, Nick Saban retires. So much, so, somewhat to the same extent, Tom. I mean, yeah, I mean – when he's done, everyone's going to be like, oh, "Okay, thank God, Coach K's out. He's done. They're gonna, they're not going to miss him." And and you know, it's it's weird to say this because now we miss this person. But when he retired, I was just like, "Oh my, thank God." When Kobe retired, I was like, "Yes, finally, okay, good. Spurs can live and be okay without Kobe literally haunting us." Um, that's going to be the same way. And, and you know what? I'll tell you what's going to be real weird. Uh, just because Roy Williams just hung it up too. Uh, you know, this time next year, uh, the old tobacco road rivalry is not going to be what it was. It's, I mean, and it hasn't. I'll, I'll be, to be fair, UNC Duke's not what it was, uh, you know, even five years ago. But it, it has its spurts, and I'm sure it'll come back around. Um, and it'll always be what it is. But, oh, my gosh, Roy Williams, Coach K., um, that, that essentially dies. Um, obviously now that Roy's hung it up and now coach K said he's hanging it up. Um, and, and it's time for a new, you know, a, a, you know, you usher in a new rivalry of some sorts that rival will always be there, you know, UNC and Duke, but now let's rewrite not rewrite a story but let's write a new story for that and i'm excited to see how that progresses uh because oh my gosh just being that close i mean that what an what an error right to see now we go from roy williams and coach k to john shire who i don't think most people even know um and hubert davis and two guys that played at Duke in North Carolina in their own rights as well. Two alums that played under Roy Williams and played under 
uh, Coach K. I mean, that's going to be unique in itself to see that come together of uh, alums carrying the mantle for their universities. Uh, and also to, to do this whole coach and waiting thing. Both those guys are uh, the types that uh, you know were assistant coaches that became head coaches. Uh, you know, one of the things that people knock about college basketball is that it is hard for assistants to get head coaching jobs. That they, you have more career assistant coaches in basketball than you do any other sport by far. It's not even close. And now we're going to see assistants that paid their dues get their chances to be head coaches. It's quite fascinating in uh, that sense. But now you look at just where college basketball is changing. You get Coach K out the door. You get Roy Williams out the door. And granted, Coach K is still going to coach this year. He's going to do a whole retirement tour before he actually hangs it up. But now you look- And I love that. Yeah, I mean, and some people don't. Some people don't like the idea of him hanging it up, that it might be tougher on recruiting and such. Uh, they'd still have the-, the I like the spawn team. song. Um, that's a whole other thing. But nonetheless, if, if Coach K is gone- who becomes the face of college basketball then? Is it Jay Wright? Is it Bill Self? Is it Tom Izzo? Is it Mark Few? I think that what now becomes in this new era, there is a, a branding gap of some sorts in the game of college basketball. We don't know who that in, in a in a sport that prides itself on it on its coaches. And you know, their, their coaches are the faces of it. And it was Roy Williams and Coach K. Who's that next guy now? Is it Jay Wright? I don't know. Um, Villanova, you know, people aren't watching Villanova basketball uh, every night. You know, it doesn't have the same appeal as Big Monday does or something like that. I don't know, Tom, who now is the face of college basketball, whether it's Bill Self or Tom Izzo or Jay Wright or whoever it may be. There is a, a void to fill within the sport now. There is, and it'll be interesting to see who takes that lead. It's it's kind of like golf in a way. Who is going to step up and, and fill those shoes? Uh, I'm very interested to see who's who could. You know, you mentioned Bill Self. I think that's got to be one of them. Uh, I, I think they've tried to put Tom Izzo in that, in that hole for so long, uh, in that, okay, he's the next one. He's like, he's like, okay. This is how I see Tom Izzo. I see Tom Izzo as like a, okay, so college football used to be sponsored by Reebok, and they had the Reebok jerseys for so long. And now they have Nike, and I think the only Reebok team left is Georgia Tech. That's how I view Tom Izzo. I view Tom Izzo as like a relic of the past that no one really gives a shit about anymore. Maybe I'm too hard on Tom Izzo, but I really don't care about Tom Izzo. I, I think – I think he wants to be that, but he's not. Uh, you know, you mentioned Jay Ride. I think it's got to be Jay Ride, Bill Self. Um, and then I think it's anybody. I think it's King of the Hill right now. I think whoever can get to the top, you yeah. know, whoever can get to the top and take it. And I'm I'm ready for it. I don't think it's you know as much as I want it to be Mike Boyton right out of the gate as an Oklahoma State fan. I don't think it's going to be. Um, but it's anybody's game right now, um, and that's kind of. You know, we haven't seen that. Not since I've been alive. Right. Scott Drew. So I'm, kind of, I'm kind of excited about it. Yeah. I mean, when Scott Drew's winning national titles now, that, that goofy face, you know, is is uh, is winning titles. 
you know something is uh is off. Something's got to be. It's time for somebody to take the reins. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, nonetheless, uh, on on Coach K, of all his accomplishments, Tom, the two that stand out to me are the Olympic team in 08, um, the Redeem team, but then also his most recent national championship. That was the year that Kentucky was undefeated all season long. I think, what was that, 2014, 2013, something like that? Um, I think so. Kentucky undefeated. They're the favorites all season long. Had all those high draft picks. What do you know, Wisconsin beats them, and Duke ends up winning the whole thing. Um, that, to me, is the one that stands out. Uh, there's a lot of them you could choose from, but those two come, come to mind. And I know those are more recent, but – um, when I look back at Coach K, that, that's what I think of right away are those two big memories there. Yeah, I think the Olympic team definitely stands out for me is, is probably the biggest just because that goes beyond basketball or like you know, college basketball. And, and you, you always wonder, and I, I don't know if I want to see, you know, I don't know if I want this timeline in my life, but what if he had just gone up to the NBA? What would he have done? Would he have been like Nick Saban with the Dolphins? Is he kind of one of those guys that just belongs to college and college only? I don't know yet if I would have wanted to see him outside of college basketball. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't made my mind up on that yet. That too. He said that any desire he had to go to the NBA was filled by coaching the Olympic team. Um, Remember his name was thrown around there. How many times, you know, there was reports at one point that, he was going to be the next head coach of the Lakers or he was going to be the next head coach of the Thunder. And, you know, if he wanted to go to the NBA, he certainly could have uh, for a long time. But with what he did there with the Olympic team, he felt like he never needed to. And so that was unique. I mean, we're, we're looking at, you know, Greg Popovich is replacing him as the next Olympic coach. And, you know, for years to come, it's probably going to be NBA coaches. Um, I think – He's the only one in the last 30 some odd years that was an actual college coach. I mean, that to me is something unique in, in Coach K's resume that college coaches will never get the opportunity to do is do what he did to, to lead that team like that and be as successful as he was doing things his way in an NBA style, essentially. Yeah, I mean, you'd be hard to find another one or even think of another one, especially now, who would be able to to take that on maybe Roy Williams could have done the same thing um but I mean coach K it was kind of a kind of destiny almost I mean it just felt right it didn't feel like it was forced or it's like they didn't feel like they just didn't have another coach that didn't want to do it um so you know I think that's his legacy and you mentioned the last championship and then you just mentioned all the players under him that just played for Duke and went on uh, I mean, we we grew up with Coach K. I mean, we grew up with the J.J. Reddicks of, you know, we we saw that, you know, growing up and through middle school and through high school, just the greatness of Coach K. And, you know, he was even great before we really were paying attention to college ball. Um, and, and so that's – I'll be watching Coach K. I would like to see – and I don't know if I'll ever get to see Coach K coach because I don't think Duke's playing Oklahoma State. I don't think you're – I don't think – well, I say that. I think Oklahoma State has an ACC challenge, so maybe. Um, 
So they do not. That's we'll the Big see. East. They played the Big East. Oh the no, they have a Big East challenge. I think it's yeah. one of the two. Yeah, they're playing. I think it is Big East. So I think they do have a Big East challenge. So I'll schedule, but yeah, it's I, that would Xavier. be cool. I'm sorry. It's against Xavier. Oh well, maybe I'll have to figure out somebody else to go see, but that would be on the list. Um, on to see if he comes close, but man, I mean, I see. I like the swan song for that. I mean, you know, I've I've brought I think the Spurs up about five times now. So if you're playing the Tom drinking game this show, uh, go ahead and take your sixth shot. If Popovich decides to do a swan song, you can bet uh, I'll be at that last game. Uh, so it's you know I'm sure there's Coach K fans. I'm sure any Duke fans are gonna have just a hell of a season kind of, you know, waving goodbye and, and, and showing their praises. I don't know if it's going to be like the, you know, farewell tour that so many NBA players there for a while were going on where they were making the videos of thank you, such and such. But uh, I'm sure we'll see a thank you, Coach K uh, video a couple of times this year. One thing I wish I would have seen from Coach K is uh, as a KU fan, I would have loved to seen a home and home with Duke in Kansas with Bill Self and Coach K. If, if KU would have played at Cameron Indoor and if Coach K would have brought Duke to Allen Fieldhouse, uh, that would have been phenomenal. I wanted to see that with Roy in UNC. I wanted to see Roy come back to Lawrence after all the years that he was there and have a return visit. But unfortunately, those things didn't happen. But nonetheless, great career for Coach K. Still more to come here on the Jones Report. Matt Zimmick is going to join us next as we're going to get his insights on Coach K's retirement. Also, talk a little tennis. Naomi Osaka will break down that situation and some college football news and notes as well. Plus, we'll have Coach Bo's Football Fix presented by O'Connor Advisory Group and our Tom Fullery Story of the Week as well. All that and more. Stay with us, please. <laughs> Joining us now on the Jones Report this week, he's the editor of Trojans Wire, also covering the tennis scene as well. And what a time to bring him on covering college football and college basketball and this French Open. Not a better time to bring on Matt Zimmick here on the Jones Report this week. Matt, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Kind of a a slow news day for the month of June. Not quite. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just nothing's happening at all. No, not at all. Not one bit. Uh, let's start out with the first big nugget. Coach K announcing uh, his retirement uh, from Duke at the end of this season. We knew that it was going to come eventually. Were you surprised at the announcement and the way that it's happening uh, a year out uh, in advance here? I'm surprised by the idea that John Shire might be the coach in waiting. I, I you know, that's the real out of nowhere aspect of this because you know Tommy Amaker, Mike Bray, you know, lots of much more credentialed coaches as possible replacements. Of course, Brad it, the fact that Brad Stevens leaves coaching on the day that Coach K announces that he's going to leave coaching, that's pretty incredible too. Um, so that that's the piece that, that that surprises me. That Coach K would step down from coaching now, you know, that he'd make the announcement, that does not surprise me because you saw him, I think, lose a little bit of appetite for the battle in the pandemic 
didn't seem fully invested in, in that season. And, you know, one thing I like to say about athletes, coaches, any competitors at all, you might still really care about something, but if you lose just one or 2% of your motivation, your intensity, your focus, that that's all it takes to, to you know, reduce your, your standing, your results at an elite level. You can't lose 1%. And Coach K certainly lost 1%, if not 2 or three. So that does not surprise me. It's the coach and waiting part. Who's the succession plan. That's the surprise. Well, we'll get to the uh, coach and waiting plan in just a second, but I want to ask you, when you look back on coach K's career, all those national titles, what he did turning around the U S men's basketball program and getting those gold medals too. hard to find a better resume or coaching career out there than what coach K established there at, uh, at Duke. Uh, what, What do you make of, his a time looking back uh, on that Hall of Fame career as one of the all-time greats. Well, you know, John Wooden from 1962 at UCLA when he made his first Final Four and then through 1975 when he won his 10th national title. I mean, that was a 14-year coaching run that, you know, we're, I mean, in terms of the, the amount of national championships he won in 14 years, 10 in 14 years, we're not going to see that again. But Coach K from his first Final Four in 1986 uh, through his uh, third national title in 2001 with the Shane Battier, Mike Dunleavy, J- Jason Williams team, Coach K in that 16-year period from 86 through 01 uh, was as close to Wooden since Wooden retired, as we've seen, uh, all the final fours, you know, just, he, he kept making them. And then, of course, the 91 win over UNLV got him over the hump uh, and turned Duke from bridesmaid into repeat national champion and dynastic force. So Coach K is as close as we've gotten to Wooden since Wooden left the scene. And, you know, if, if you're in the same company as John Wooden, that really says it all about Coach K. Well, the, the thing I look at, too, about Coach K is that, you know, Duke, sure, they had a few Final Four appearances in the 60s and such, but what we think of that program today as a blue blood and everything is really all Coach K. You look at the other blue bloods, all of them have a history of two or three Hall of Fame coaches of some sorts. Duke, to do what they did all under Coach K is just f- phenomenal to, to, to speak of what he did to put them on the map of where they are right now. Yeah, and that you bring up a really good point about blue blood status. Like, it's not just automatically there. There comes a time when when that status is earned. Uh, I think as a co- point of comparison, I think Villanova, when it won that 2018 title on top of the 2016 title, I thought personally that made Villanova a blue blood because you just had that 1985 title. And then, then you just had the 2016 title as kind of like the end of a long drought. But when, when Villanova won that third national title, Jay Wright second. So there comes a time when you earn blue blood status. And I think it's pretty clear. Duke was not a blue blood when Coach K took over at the very beginning of the 1980s. He had to make it into a blue blood. And that, that moment came, I think, when Duke went back to back in 91 and 92, you know, and, and, and so that, that status just isn't just conferred upon you. It's, it's earned. And so he took a program in the shadows of Dean Smith, you know, Dean Smith was rolling along right when coach K uh, took the job in Durham. uh, And he, so he built a blue blood in the shadow of another. It's, it's an extraordinary legacy that, you know, it's worth going back to the early 1980s and realizing the humble origins 
from which Coach K built this dynasty. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And now uh, John Shire uh, takes over as the next head coach after this season. Uh, what do you know about him and what's ahead for uh, this Duke program? What are they getting in a uh, John Shire uh, taking over this, uh, this Duke program after this season? Well, you know, when you look at the younger members of the Coach K tree, haven't, haven't done spectacularly well. You look at Wojo at Marquette, that didn't really work out. Jeff Capel at Pitt, he's had a lot of uh, transfer exoduses. So, you know, the younger members of that tree. So I, I think the, the, the main thing for Shire is that you know, he'll, he'll need an elite assistant. I mean, maybe does he convince Mike Bray to come back, to, to come back to mama and, uh, and become, you know, a sage wise assistant? Can he get, you know, remember, like, look at Juwan Howard at Michigan, Tyler. He, he brought aboard Phil Martelli. And I think that was a real, real strong presence he could lean on. Someone with a lot of head coaching experience, credentials in the sport, that helped Jawan Howard a lot at Michigan. We shouldn't uh, under underestimate or overlook how valuable Phil Martelli was as uh, Jawan Howard's lieutenant. So Shire needs to find his own Phil Martelli on that Duke staff. That's going to be something to watch for. Uh, and like, Hubert Davis, you know, taking over for Roy. I didn't see that kind of assistant on Hubert's staff at North Carolina. So if Shire can find that kind of Phil Martelli equivalent, that's going to give Duke an edge over North Carolina in, in the uh, seasons ahead. We'll see if he's able to, to make that move or not. Where does uh, Brad Stevens fit into all this? Uh, I know that, you know, his name was thrown around as, the potential successor to Coach K at Duke for a long time. We just found out today that uh, he's going to be stepping away from coaching, wanted a, a break of some sorts to uh, uh, now move into this president president of a uh, basketball ops role. Do, do you think we could still – does this rule out the possibility of Brad Stevens going back to college basketball anytime soon, or do you think that uh, he, he still maybe uh, is interested in some other blue blood jobs that could come up down the road? So Adrian Wojnarowski uh, tweeted out that apparently Stevens was worn down by coaching in the bubble last year, and that he was kind of kind of exhausted. So if that reportage is accurate, Tyler, that tells me that he just needs a break, and that his tenure as uh, in the Celtics front office as an executive is not going to be too long. That he just needs the breather from the grind of coaching for a relatively short period of time, and then he'll want back in. But now where he comes back in with Duke taken, now that's, that is a really uh, big question. So my, my inclination right now, Tyler, is that he'd probably take an NBA job, which is kind of a building job and is not a glamor job such as the Celtics. Uh, now, now which one that would be, I mean, it wouldn't be the Sacramento Kings because no one wants to work for that ownership group, but maybe just a, a quieter NBA job without the, the scrutiny that you get in Boston. That is my inclination at this point. I don't know where, where Steven's path to college is now that Duke is closed off. I, I just don't see what job is out there, which would make him want to get back into the college game. Uh, I'd say a, like just like a mid-level NBA job which gives you some chance to climb, uh, but uh, has a competent ownership group um, and doesn't have the withering scrutiny of Boston. Right, right. Well, and Matt, you know, me as a Kansas guy, you know, I, I'm, 
I don't think Bill Self's leaving anytime soon, but he would have to be the first phone call if you're KU or into these other blue bloods is at least try Brad Stevens, right? Absolutely. You've got to make someone such as Brad Stevens say no. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> All right, Matt, let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, I know that you're covering the, uh, the, the French open and the tennis side so closely uh, for, or for tennis accent and uh, the biggest story before all this uh, Coach K and Brad Stevens stuff was uh, the, the uh, Naomi Osaka situation of her withdrawing from the French Open with the uh, media situation, the, the back and forth that's gone on the last couple of days. Give us your perspective from what you've seen, how this has all unfolded here uh, this, these last few days. Okay, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds, but there has to be some explanation of kind of the background, the policy, the procedures in tennis, which, you know, really boring, but let me just try to give you a, 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 the general sense of what happened on Sunday. That letter on Sunday came, I mean, it came through the French Open, but it was really, it was signed by the four main executives from the four major tournaments, the Australian Open, French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. So the, the four Grand Slams are under the banner of the International Tennis Federation, the ITF. The ATP and the WTA Tours, the men's and women's tours, they run the kind of the normal one-week tournaments over the course of the season. But the Grand Slams, the four two-week tournaments, they go, they're under the banner of the ITF. So just I have to explain a little bit about the tennis bureaucracy. Similar set to golf in that sense. Yes, yes. So... The four Grand Slams wrote that letter saying we're, we're, we might threaten to default Osaka, disqualify her from the tournament if she continues to skip press conferences. Now, in the ITF's code of conduct, the, there is a place called uh, Article 3, Section T, which governs defaults. Uh, and the, the Grand Slams cited this section, Section T, in its code uh, as terms of the basis for threatening default. But if you read through that section T, Tyler, there's no specific numerical allocation where or standard where if you miss like three or four, whatever, there's no specific numerical limit for defaulting a player for missing a certain amount of press conferences. So this was a vague threat. It was not based on a precise rule book citation. It was just a heavy-handed power move by the Grand Slams. And so the main thing is, is that even though Osaka could have gone about this a better way and her management team, it should be said, has not made the good, solid decisions on her behalf, that should be noted. But you have the French Open going on. This is your one of your big showcase events if you're tennis. So if you're one of the leaders of the four Grand Slams, you want to let the tournament play out. And then after the French Open's over, then you quietly meet with Osaka and her management team behind closed doors. You resolve this before Wimbledon. Then the focus can be on tennis, not on this soap opera. But because the Grand Slams were so heavy-handed in responding to Osaka's you know, imperfect statement last week, uh, you know, she made a much better statement on Monday when she was just it was just more personal about her depression. It wasn't so much about the media, the, the Grand Slams. They just could have waited two weeks. No one would have died. It wouldn't have been a global crisis. But they were so panicky about allowing the, the precedent of a player skipping a news conference. They didn't want that to be accepted as you know doable or realistic. You know, so I understand why they did what they did, but they could have waited two weeks to do this. All the other players, they're, they're busy playing tennis. So that, that could have waited. The, so here's the other really big part of the story, Tyler. 
when we say it's part of your job to meet the media as an athlete, broadly, that's true. That's part of being a professional. But the difference between the difference here is that in tennis, you're not guaranteed a monthly or yearly income because your performance is based on whether you win matches or not. You don't have the salary that you get as a team sport athlete. So an easy fix to this, Tyler, at least in my mind, you don't need to give big money, you know, because you have to spread it around. But just give players $100 for attending a post-match press conference because that way it's guaranteed income. You're giving them a little carrot, a little incentive instead of a, just a stick, you know, and threatening punishment. Look at like with the vaccines in the, in the pandemic, you know, the Ohio had a lottery. And after that lottery, you got a lot more vaccinations. So like instead of just threatening to punish people, that doesn't work. You give them an incentive. So for tennis players, and let's let's just flesh this out for your audience, Tyler. If you're ranked like 200 in the world or lower, you're not making bank because you have to pay for a coach. You have to pay for a, a massage therapist. You have to pay for all these resources, your equipment, your travel. If you're number 200 in the world, you're not making out uh, financially. In the top 50, yes, you're making you're making a very comfortable life. But uh, 50 to 200 is kind of like a gray area. But if you're 200 or lower, you're not having a financially secure world. So giving people, giving tennis players a little bit of money, you know, at all levels of professional competition, that'd be an easy way to, to take the sting out of this, to make press conferences less threatening and more of genuinely part of your job. We're going to pay you because you don't have that guaranteed money coming in. So if tennis did that, that would seem to be an easy fix. It would seem to be so. And uh, the second statement that uh, Naomi Osaka released, I looked at that, Matt, and I said, you know, this should have been the first statement to begin with. If she would have, you know, said, you know, hey, here's what I'm dealing with. I'm not comfortable speaking pub in public, you know, and, and uh, most of the media is actually very nice to me and such. It's just a personal thing I go through. If she would have started there, I think we would have had a much different situation here than where this all uh, unfolded, uh, we're all led to at this point. Completely agree. And I think if you asked anyone in tennis, anyone who works in the sport or who is just a, like a long-term diehard fan, they'd all agree with that. And that's absolutely true. And it does merit repeating that her management team really is not, has not given her great advice. And so, you know, this is a situation where Osaka is 23 and she has tens of millions of dollars, worldwide fame, and it's, it's not easy to handle that. I mean, that's a lot to, to handle, a lot of responsibility, a lot of pressure. And so I just want to make clear that she's made mistakes. Like she did not play her cards right in, right in this case, but that doesn't make her the bad person. It means that she's trying to figure things out. I mean, young people make mistakes and we need to separate mistakes, which she made from crimes. Like she didn't fix a match. She didn't bribe an official. You know, she skipped a press conference, which, you know, it's a legitimate point of concern for tennis and the Grand Slams and the leadership. Fine. But she, she didn't do anything really severe. You know, and so though there has to be some perspective here. And, and, I, and in, the, in the heat of the moment, perspective doesn't always win the day. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and bringing mental health awareness to the forefront, too, to uh, put herself out there. You know, I, I applaud her for the second statement for, uh, you know, making herself vulnerable for saying what she said and, you know, you know, being upfront about it. We mentioned that her management team didn't really help her out in the beginning there. You know, I, I, 
I, I loved watching her in the Australian Open earlier this year and how well she played. And and this too, I mean, uh, I, I'm coming away with this, Matt, liking Naomi Osaka more. You know, I, I have empathy for her. I'm sure a lot of folks are probably feeling that same way too. What, what do you come away, uh, your feelings toward Naomi Osaka after all this? You know, she's just a, she's a young athlete trying to figure out how to balance her life and her work. And uh, to kind of make a connection to another tennis player, you, Dominic Team. I don't know if you followed him very closely, but, you know, he lost in the first round. And earlier this year, he said, I've been chasing my goals for 15 years, you know, complete tunnel vision. And now I'm in my late 20s and I'm wondering, you know, what else is out there? I want to broaden, quote, broaden the horizon. He said that. So he's trying to find his own life work balance. And, you know, you have to have tunnel vision as an athlete. I mean, that kind of goes without saying you have to obsessively focus on performance and being your best. And at some point, though, what about the rest of your life? And so, you know, Osaka's wrestling with these questions, too. And you're not going to get it right immediately. You know, this is this is a process, you know, and, and the big three, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, I mean, they've won at an extraordinary level because they have somehow found a way to balance their life and their work in, in, in a healthy way. They've managed to still be ruthlessly competitive, but they've managed to savor what they do off the court. So when they come back on the court, they're fresh. They're mentally fresh. They found a balance at a, at a level no, none of their peers have found. That's really been the secret of their success. And we have to remind ourselves, we're not going to see those guys again. We're not going to see three people winning at least 20 majors. I mean, Djokovic is at 18. He's probably, though, going to get to 20. Few people doubt that at this point. We're not going to see three people in the same period of time winning 20 major titles. Like, these, are, these guys are unicorns. But they, they're, the, the way that they found life-work balance, managed to balance on the court and off the court life, you know, that's the secret to it. And it's extremely hard. So that is just the Naomi Osaka story. We can acknowledge that she made mistakes, but just make the separation between a mistake and a crime or a serious offense. Exactly. Now uh, that she's out of the picture here, who's uh, who's to beat for the uh, the women's uh, side of the uh, French Open now? Who are you watching for? Yeah, well, I think if you ask most people who cover women's tennis very closely, it would be the defending champion, Iga Swiatek of Poland, who who didn't lose a set last year in October. Uh, and now, you know, the Roland Garros was played in October because of the pandemic. It's normally played in early June. Um, she would probably be the favorite, but she's not an overwhelming favorite. Um, lots of players are injured. Uh, 2016 Roland Garros champion Garbina Muguruza had lower back problems. She lost in her first round match. Ashley Barty, the world number one player, she had lower back problems in her first round match. She got through it in three sets, but did not look very convincing. So it seems as though the path is opening up for Sviantec, uh to be able to make her way through. Uh, but but there's no overwhelming favorite, and, and we should expect a lot of bracket chaos, just like March, uh, in the coming two weeks. And we've gone this far without even mentioning Serena here. So, <laughs> And she got through her second round match in three sets. That just happened uh, as we're talking. So how about that? Uh, Zareta uh, still can't count out definitely for sure. How about the men's side? What's that shaping up on, on that front? Well, the interesting plot twist here, Tyler, is that Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal, obviously the two best 
male tennis players in the world, they got drawn to play in the semifinals. They won't be able to play in the final. And, you know, for, for Americans, the, the tennis bracketing system for tournaments is weird because it's a draw. It's a random draw. So it's not one – the one seed always plays the four seed in the semis, and the two seed always plays the three seed. If you're three or four, you could play number one. So number one, uh, Djokovic, is playing number three, Nadal, in, in that half in that semifinal. So that's, that's the weird bracketing system that tennis uses. So the other half of the draw with Djokovic and Nadal are not in, are not in that other half. And so Stefano Tsitsipas of Greece is the clear favorite to make the final from that open half that doesn't have Nadal or Djokovic. He, he and Alexander Zverev are expected to make deep runs, but Tsitsipas is expected to make the final. That would be his first major final if he can do it. So there's a lot of pressure on him, but you know everyone expects Nadal and Djokovic to meet in the semifinals, and then the winner would be the favorite to win the title. Sounds exciting. Matt, uh, a few more things before we uh, get out of here. Never too early to talk college football, so – I uh, want to get your take. Uh, the uh, NCAA period for recruiting uh, ended after, what was it, you know, 15, 16 months, something like that. It's been a long time since these uh, recruits could have been able to come on campus, since coaches could make visits and such. Uh, now, it, it, it's, is it a free-for-all of sorts? How much has this changed things, uh, opening up the uh, landscape again? Well, I was struck by how Florida State and Mike Norvell opened their doors at 12.01 a.m. as though they couldn't wait until 8 or 9 in the morning. They had to do like their own kind of midnight madness only for recruiting. So it shows how much they're invested in it. But, you know, we've seen in the transfer portal – it hasn't really leveled out the playing field. It's, it's been a rich get richer uh, situation. And so if the recruiting uh, now, you know, in-person visits uh, returning, you know, there's, there's just no evidence to me that the, the playing field is being leveled more in college football, that, you know, the elites are still going to be elites un- until we see some real convincing uh, countervailing evidence uh, pointing the other direction. Yeah, it would seem to be that way. And uh, the, the conference you cover, the uh, Pac-12, uh, USC, uh, are they the favorites uh, going into this year? I know Oregon uh, lost uh, their, their star quarterback uh, to Texas Tech. What's, uh, what's that shaping out on, on the Pac-12 side where you're at? Well, you know, I try to read various outlets across the country, and it seems as though the, 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 the national outlets think USC has the best chance. But as someone who covers USC – you know, we come back to the simple reality that it's Clay Helton. I mean, he's not hes not a particularly strong coach, and he doesn't have Sam Darnold to bail him out, which is essentially what happened in 2016 and 2017 when USC had the two successful seasons of Helton's tenure. So I'm not convinced that Clay Helton's going to get it done. I will say that USC has a very soft schedule, doesn't have to play Oregon, doesn't have to play Washington, doesn't have any short week night games. You know, USC would lose in the past when it had to go to Washington State on a Friday night after playing like Texas on a short week. There are none of those sand traps, but nevertheless, it's still Clay Helton and no one within the USC community really trusts him to get the job done. And frankly, if you ask most USC fans, they want this season to be a failure because the, the biggest thing that uh, USC needs in terms of restoring its greatness to the Pete Carroll standard 
is for Clay Helton to be gone sooner rather than later. So in terms of evaluating the Pac-12, I would lean toward Oregon as the favorite, but Oregon does not have a proven quarterback. So I think the, the biggest thing that, that I feel confident in saying about the Pac-12 this season, Tyler, is that its champion will miss the playoff once again. That's the thing I'm most confident about. So with that being the case, then the other four spots, do you, do you see them going to the other uh, four conferences or do you think we, we talk about a Notre Dame or maybe a conference getting two schools in? How do you uh, already see the, the playoff shaping out as is? Yeah, well, you know, Notre Dame, is, uh, the history of Notre Dame recently under Brian Kelly has been that they, they have a really good season every two to three years. Now, Notre Dame going back to back in the playoff, that hasn't happened yet. But Notre Dame, you know, had a made the BCS championship game in the 2012 season, almost made the playoff in 2015, made the playoff in 2018, uh, made the playoff last year. But doing back to back, I think that's going to be a harder lift for Notre Dame. So I think we're going to see the other four power five conferences. I mean, I think I think Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma, uh, those are the obvious cl clubhouse favorites. Uh, as we start, as we go into the season, I mean, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see which of those conferences features an upset, if any. Well, and, and you mentioned Lincoln Riley in Oklahoma, they attacked the transfer portal as well as anybody this year. If you added in the portal with high school recruiting numbers, OU's recruiting would be right up there with Alabama's. I'm very intrigued with uh, that Sooner team. I, I think, Matt, it's going to be Alabama and Oklahoma than everyone else. I think we see OU finally take that jump this year. Yeah, well, it's going to be very important for Oklahoma to get the number two seed in the playoff so that they don't get drawn with Alabama in the semis. And we, we don't need this explanation that Oklahoma keeps running into an SEC team in the playoff, it also ran into Clemson back in 2015. But the last few years, it's been uh, Alabama in the Orange Bowl, LSU in the Peach Bowl. Uh, so, you know, the, these, these SEC teams have, have really been the roadblock. So Oklahoma needs to uh, draw probably Ohio State. If Oklahoma can uh, draw Ohio State, you know, without Justin Fields uh, in a semifinal, that that's probably the scenario which can finally get the Sooners and the Big 12 uh, that elusive playoff semifinal victory yeah it's been a long time coming uh last thing before we let you go matt um uh, where you're at pac-12 country what's the feeling towards the future of that conference uh, new commissioner there uh we know that you know grant rights are, are coming up soon for uh for these leagues and the big 12's already been uh told no from fox and espn on on contract extensions at least for now anyway what's What's your feelings towards everything uh, where it's headed with the Pac-12 and these other leagues as far as this next step moving forward? Yeah, very interesting. I mean, you know, with CBS giving up the SEC that, you know, the, the, the Pac-12 needs to be in on CBS uh, getting a deal. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if CBS college football goes to, get, you know, gets either a Big 12 deal or a Pac-12 deal. I have no immediate uh, feel for what George Klyovkov, the new commissioner, is going to do. Uh, he, he, isn't, he doesn't formally take over until July 1st. Uh, it, it, I don't think it's going to become immediately apparent, Tyler, what his plan is. The first thing he has to do is get his own Pac-12 network situation, handle the direct TV mess, which Larry Scott could never figure out. I think that's the first thing he has to do on the TV front. 
And then, of course, he has to make some obvious fixes in terms of getting the headquarters relocated. You know, since he's from MGM Resorts, you would think that Pac-12 HQ is going to move from San Francisco, where Larry Scott was paying exorbitant rent, and go down to Las Vegas and get a much more uh, uh, cost-efficient setup going. So there's so much on his plate, and he has to clear out a lot of the wreckage that Larry Scott left behind before we really get a full sense of what his larger television plan is. But it starts with Pac-12 Network uh, and DirecTV, and, and then we might be able to see the landscape more clearly. Well, and, and you mentioned Vegas, move the headquarters there. There's a new president, uh, an MGM guy. I would imagine sports betting, uh, if the Pac-12 is going to move forward, if they're looking to gain advantage of some sorts, they would need to be the league that needs to be the forefront on uh, on embracing sports betting and being a part of college football in that sense, especially with name, image, and likeness here also approaching. Completely agree and kind of related to that, Tyler. We need to see the Pac-12 getting a lot of high-end neutral site games to Las Vegas. You know, you know, you know very well in Big 12 country that Arlington is a magnet location for neutral site games uh, early in the season. Uh, the Pac-12 now needs to make Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas a real hub and do kind of what the SEC do and ACC do with the Chick-fil-A series of games over Labor Day weekend. So, like, the Pac-12 needs to be all in on making Las Vegas that same kind of hub. Have a Saturday game, have a Labor Day game, have another game a week later. Just lo- load up on Allegiant Stadium games, lure some Big 12 and SEC teams to play USC, Oregon, Washington. That's what we will need to see as the 2020s move ahead. I mean, you have scheduled dates filled the next two to three years, but like in, by 2024, 2025, we need to see that Vegas card lined up with lots of high-end games. So that's a big, definitely a big priority for the Pac-12. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and uh, to add to that point too, Matt, I mean, we, we, we looked at with where the playoff is going, the emphasis on bowl games is the lowest it's ever been in my lifetime anyway, maybe the lowest ever. And you have these games to open up the year, Labor Day weekend on neutral sites. There's no reason why those can't be the bowl trips or the, uh, you know, have the same aura of sorts that those bowl games had previously in January. In fact, Labor Day weekend, everybody off Monday anyway. I mean, the Pac-12, Embrace Vegas or San Francisco, whatever it may be, make those feel like bowl games dope up the year. Be great for fans and you know for those that are traveling and such. Absolutely. I just want to duck in that since we're talking about the playoff a little bit. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I just wish that we had always I just wish that college football would, would give the plus one a try. You know, the plus one is the best thing that's never been tried by this sport. Uh, you know, you just look through a lot of the famous instances of split national championships from the pre-BCS era, Colorado, Georgia Tech, Miami, Washington, uh, other instances like you know, Auburn and Miami from 1983. Uh, so many instances of split titles. If you just had a plus one game after the Bulls, we could return to, I mean, this is my fantasy, but this is what the sport should do, in my opinion. You go back to a 1985 world where, you know, Oklahoma fans would throw oranges on the field when you'd win the Big Eight title, Let's get back to that. Let's have SEC fans throwing sugar cubes on the field. And you go back to all the traditional bowl games where each bowl game is a reward. You know, going to the Rose Bowl is not a disappointment for USC. It's a reward as it as it used to be. And then you have the plus one after the Bulls to resolve a national championship dispute. 
That would be my idea of what we should go back to. But I know whether we're not going to see it happen. It's probably going to be an eight-team playoff. Well, and, and uh, you mentioned with the plus one, that idea was thrown around a lot for quite some time. I was surprised, Matt, that we never did actually see it at some point, even for a short amount of time of some sorts. When we look at all these changes where the sport's gone, uh, that one seemed to be a popular idea at one point. You know, if it makes sense, college football doesn't do it. We, we've been around long enough to know that. <laughs> that is true. Matt, before we let you go, uh, plug where people can follow uh, your college football coverage with USC, tennis, uh, and all that stuff. Where, where's the best way people find you, man? So I'm at trojanswire.com, uh, part of the Gannett USA Today College Wire network of sites uh, on Twitter at Trojans Wire. And I'm also, uh, I'm personally on Twitter at Matt Zemek, Z-E-M-E-K, and also at uh, on, for tennis at just M Zemek. And on, my website is uh, on Twitter, accent underscore tennis. We're doing some Twitter live shows every day of the French Open and also Wimbledon. So uh, those are the places where you can find me. Matt, we appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks, Tyler. It's great fun. Time for Coach Bo's Football Fix presented by O'Connor Advisory Group. You can reach out to Coach Bo at brian.o'connor at lpl.com. That's brian.o'connor at lpl.com. O-A-G-K-S.com, O'Connor Advisory Group.com is the website. Also on Facebook, facebook.com, O'Connor Advisory Group. Coach Bo joins us right now. Bo, how are we doing? I'm doing pretty good, Tyler. How are you doing today? Doing well. Doing well, Bo. Uh, we have a lot to cover, but before we do, uh, tell us what's going on at uh, O'Connor Advisor Group this week, Bo. Hey, you know, it's summertime, and we're in summer. June's here, and, uh, and it's the time of year where people start thinking about doing some planning. They start thinking, looking at the kids around the house, and they go, oh, shit, what are we going to do here? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it happens. Hey, um, we want to be part of that. Man, if you got a kid, you're thinking about college savings, you're thinking about how do I pay for this? You know, this kid, you know, if you're like me, you look at your kids sometimes and you go, there's no way this kid's getting a scholarship. You just give me a shout. Let's figure out a way to pay for this and make sure your kids get educated. We want um, to be your partner. We want to be your partner. That's right. You know, and clients always first here, man. Whatever you need, we're here for you. Awesome stuff. Bo, uh, let's get started uh, on the uh, forefront of June 1st. It has passed us now. That is a very important date on the NFL calendar. Uh, did June 1st go as you expected it to? What did uh, you make of the June 1 dates and those post-June 1 cuts or moves that we've seen since then? We, we didn't see a lot of June 1 cuts this year. Usually you see a couple of big names get the ax. We saw those happen before June 1. And for those who don't know what that means, June 1's a salary cap day. This is a day that just the yesterday, the 1st, was a day that – a lot of bonuses are paid before and after the first. Uh, it's sort of the day where your salary cap number can be decreased uh, based upon you receiving bonuses before that. Uh, now you can't rework your contract for this current season um, unless it's extension. So um, now you're going to see some teams that it's the cost of doing business is going to go down. Now you'll see, some big names usually will just get dropped for salary cap purposes. We haven't seen as much of that, mostly because we haven't seen that much spending. And now I think what we're going to see is a few trades. There's a few players out there, Julio Jones, if there's a Aaron Rodgers deal out there, maybe. Um, 
There's a few things. You'll see a few signings. You know, Richard Sherman's out there. Zach Ertz is the name you can talk about for a trade right now. Uh, Russell Okun, somebody who might get signed. So a lot of these things had to do with getting the salary cap moving and taking your hit after June 1. It's cheaper for you salary cap-wise. Makes you a little more flexible. So why do they have that date in place? Why not that just be when the offseason begins? You know, I don't know. It's a good question. It's, they, they do a full year. They always do an NFL year, and the year starts like in March, and you have the draft and then the schedule release. June 1 is uh, it's usually about a month away from training camp. The training camp generally starts around the 1st of July, and it can be a little before, it can be a little after. Um, so that's, that's a part of it. I don't know what how arbitrarily the NFL and the PA came up with that number, but it is what it is. And it is a date that you'll see salary cap numbers will now change for a lot of players. So with that being said, we still have a few more weeks till training camp gets started. Do you expect any big cuts or moves to be made here in the coming days before then? Um, I think Julio Jones is going to get traded. I guess the big one. I think Julio's going to get traded. I think um, – I don't think an Aaron Rodgers trade is going to happen. They can put Matt LaFleur and anybody else they want on Sports Center. They're not going to trade him. It's not going to happen. The only way it happens is if Rodgers comes out and says, I'm holding out. I demand a trade and demands it publicly. Talked a lot about that last week. Um, Julio's the one that I – mean, he wants out. You know, he kind of got <laughs> screwed publicly a little bit by Shannon Sharp last week, but uh, I think he's going to be traded soon. I think I had to go June 1 on that. Um, I think Zach Ertz is going to get traded. I think he's going to go to Buffalo. That's just going to be a salary cap dump for the Eagles. Um, and then we'll see guys like Sheldon Richardson, Geno Atkins, uh, Justin Houston, Richard Sherman is probably the most recognizable name that will get signed in the next few weeks. Uh, Russell Okung. Um and I expect some of these guys to go back to where they started or where they, or where they were at already. Um, you'll see some of these names. I think one to look at if you're local is Todd Gurley. I think Todd Gurley may end up in Kansas City. Mm. Yeah, I think it, it might be end up here as a backup. I think that's he'd be a good change of pace for um, Edwards Delaire. So, you know, you're going to see some players. You'll also see a few cuts. Um, you know, getting up to now to training camp, there'll be a couple people here and there. Um, you know, I just matter of signing a couple of rookies, or maybe you give an extension to somebody, you got to come up with a salary cap dump because of it. Uh, you'll see a little bit more of that after June 1 and beforehand. So it's a money thing. Um, but I don't think we'll see anything earth shattering. Okay. Uh, the Julio Jones thing is uh, is fascinating, and it doesn't seem like there's been any new developments between this week and last. Uh, what say you, Bo? Where does Julio, you think, end up? There's a, there's a few different good answers here. I, I've seen a lot of speculation, and I've seen a lot of good answers. Um, I think he's going to I think he's going to go to, to a team in the AFC. I don't think Atlanta's going to want him even near him. Um, I think that rules up the Packers. I think the Packers are the team that can make the biggest play for him. Um, as far as the top tier teams, um, I would not be surprised if it's Tennessee. Yeah, that's, that's the team that I think Tennessee. I can even see Indy. Uh, 
Think about teams where the quarterback is just not that elite guy. They need another weapon. I mean, who better than Julio? You got him for two or three seasons on the contract still. So I think that that's what it'll be. There's a couple of good fits in the NFC. I think the Green Bay is a good fit. I think uh, San Francisco is a good fit. I think New Orleans is a good fit. But I don't see any way Atlanta trades him in the NFC unless it's for a huge deal to Green Bay. Okay. Um, with the idea of Tennessee here, uh, you know, I, I've looked at Ryan Tannehill. I think about this with Tannehill Bowl. You know, every team's looking for that quarterback that that is worth that second contract that they want to draft and and uh, is that franchise-caliber quarterback. Tannehill, to me, is that line. That is the standard of every team in the league should be happy if they had a Ryan Tannehill as their quarterback long-term. You add him Julio Jones, you're already in a division that includes a good team in the Indianapolis Colts here. Um, I mean, you add in Tennessee, if, if they get Julio, I mean, I, I would think – they're already a good team. They would probably jump up to be one of the top two or three best teams in the NFC at that point. I, I think that I like the tights. I like they're a good roster. Um, I think adding another weapon helps Ryan Tannehill, a guy who can he can fling it. I mean, he can fling it. He, he likes a deep ball. Jones is a guy who can get you deep, but he can also run great routes. You can move them all over the field. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to stack the box against Derrick Henry. you got to take care of Julio Jones as well. That helps your run game. Um, you know, they have a situation where their offensive play calling is very, in modern days, very conservative because they have an outstanding run game. But um, this could really help them. I think if I'm the Titans and you want to make that next step, you want to be where you are to where you're the favorite for your division, which I think they already are the favorite in that division. I think the Colts have got too many questions to quarterback. Uh, I just – I'm not, we know this, I've talked about it before. I'm not a fan of Carson Wentz. Um, I think that Tennessee to me is the favorite in the South, but then to you want to go up to that level with Kansas City, with the Ravens, um, you know, those couple, those top couple teams, what you're going to have to do is have someone who can light it up scoreboard wise. Julio Jones can still do that. So he can go out there and score. You know, we talked about late in the season. The Titans were the team that teams were scared of because they can slow the game down and they can just beat you with the run game and that strong defense. They haven't lost anything. And you add Julio, that gives them a big play possibility. Um, man, that, to me, that spells out building a really good roster. And Tannehill's already a good deep ball thrower, too. Yeah, he is. And I think that's what that's what does that's what he does so well in that offense. They run the play action out of it. And you, now you can run play action. You can have Julio go across the field, run some Tyreek Hill type of routes. I mean, that's what we're kind of familiar with here. But if you don't know, I mean, that guy can play. And I, I've i heard the Titans have offered or considering offering a first-round pick for him. Man, if you can get a first-round pick right now, take it. If, uh, if they get Julio, their first play call has got to be a play action bomb. <laughs> yeah, first down, you're going, well, I think the first, first one's going to hand it to Henry. And then on second down and six, you're going to just throw a deep bomb and go, oh, don't forget, we got that guy too. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Bo and the Aaron Rodgers situation, uh, no new updates there, but uh, Jordan Love did get plenty of reps in a mini camp here. And, you know, if you're a Packer fan, I think the best case scenario here is essentially kind of how this 
minicamp played out of you don't need Aaron at minicamp. Does him no benefits whatsoever. Um, you look at Jordan Love, he needs the reps. He needs the repetition and everything. From, the, from a Packers fan standpoint, as frustrated as you may be by the conflict with Aaron and management and such, if you look at just what's happened with minicamp, Everything would appear to be fine in that sense of Jordan Love getting the time he needs and Aaron getting to enjoy his uh, his Hawaiian vacation of sorts or whatever he was doing. Yeah, I mean, it, I, you know, if Brett Favre did the same stuff. I mean, you don't – what's he going to do right now? I mean, is he going to need timing with his wide receivers? I mean, he already knows what he's doing. Those guys know him. He knows them. It ain't like they drafted anybody that's going to help him. So – you know, they haven't done that in 15 years. So you might as well go ahead and just you know, let Aaron do what Aaron wants to do. Bring it when he comes back, he comes back, and then you have your chance to win. But I, I, I think if you're a Packers fan, you just kind of say, okay, well, we'll get there. You know, just if you're a Packers fan, don't pay too much attention. Just, and we really shouldn't be paying much attention anyway. I mean, it's freaking June. Right. It's June. If you're worried about what's going on at minicamp, you were bored. <laughs> I mean, don't worry about what's going on in minicamp. Don't worry about any of this stuff right now. Go watch a ball game. If you want to watch a baseball game or, 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 or go outside and do something. The rain stopped finally. So, I mean, just, you know, those kind of things. Yeah, I don't worry about it. As Aaron Rodgers said a couple of seasons ago, relax. He ain't going anywhere. If uh, the Broncos, which have been the leader in the clubhouse, it seems, as far as pulling the deal off, if if they were to bring in Aaron to get some type of deal done, what would it take? What could the Broncos give up to uh, give Green Bay an offer they can't refuse? It sounds like that they're on the phone. They're trying to call them, but Green Bay and company's not picking up the phone. Well, I, I... – I always wonder when you hear you know, who's doing what, what's happening. Um, the Broncos have the luxury of having a big salary cap. They got a big gap. So they can take on Aaron Rodgers' contract. Um, the Packers, again, we've talked about this in the past too. The biggest problem the Packers have is that they don't have the one person who says, this is what we do with our star player. Either he stays or he goes. Right. And – they're just going to sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait. They're like the, um, like the nervous Nelly who is like the old lady who's sitting in traffic. She's just sitting there at the light and she just wants to turn, but she's just so too afraid to turn in the oncoming traffic. Bet you got to move the car and get a goal here. Let's go. Turn it right. Go right on red. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. You know, let's move it. Um, there is no offer that the Broncos can just magically appear with. It's going to make the Packers make the decision. I mean, maybe it's two ones. Maybe it's two ones. And, I mean, they're going to have to add junk to it. Well, I mean, junk, I mean, one of these quarterbacks. I mean, it's going to have to be we give you two ones plus lolly dotty these two quarterbacks. And why would you need those quarterbacks if you're the Packers? Right. So it's going to have to be just filled with – it's going to have to be the greatest Easter basket of all time. Isn't it going to be pretty ironic if somehow a deal gets done and Denver ends up giving up a skill position player and all this? Well, I mean, they're going to have to if they want to make this deal. I mean, if it, it's just horrible that it has to go that way. But let me look here. If the Broncos are going to make this deal, 
Uh, they're going to have to give up two ones. That's the base. They're going to have to give up one of the young receivers. Um, whether that's Jerry Judy or um, who they just trade for, or just draft. Name skips my mind here. Um, but um... yeah. It, it, it's going to be something like that. I mean, they're going to have to give up a big name and a, a good player, a young player who's under a contract. It isn't going to be throwing in Drew Locke. Right. Yeah, I mean, Drew Locke's going to be the Sarah Cat. He's going to be the casualty. Right. Maybe like Cortland Sutton. Yeah, I mean, you can even see – so if you're, the, if you're the Packers, you're going to ask for Bradley Chubb. Yeah. You're going to ask for Chubb and two, two, two ones. Mm-hmm. You're going to ask for two ones – a flip of a third one, and then Bradley Chubb. Yeah. And that's what it's going to be, something stupid like that. And the Broncos shouldn't do that because the Broncos can get Aaron Rodgers one year from now. Well, they can get him in January for half the price. Mm-hmm. The Packers, if they were smart, would make the trade, especially now to June 1. Right. They've already amortized a bunch of the, of the bonus. Rodgers is an easier deal now. Yeah, I would make that deal any time now if I were the Packers. The problem is, is that, again, they don't have one person to say, this is what we're going to do. There's no one person to come around and write the check. Right. You know, when you've got the – if you've got Clark Hunt, if you've got Jerry Jones, you know, if you've got that one person who can write the check and say, okay, this is what we need to win, I'll write the check. Sure. Let's do it. And the Packers don't do that. They don't have that. And that's always going to be their issue until they get a private owner. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think that's a big part of it, I think. I think that's so unsaid in this deal publicly. Like when you watch, I mean, no one's talking about that. And I'll tell you, that's a big reason why this thing hasn't been done. Yeah. Because they could have gone and made Aaron happy by now. Right. And they wouldn't have drafted a quarterback last year. They wouldn't have drafted Jordan Love last year. Even if Jordan Love was the number one player on their board, one a one person at the top would not allow his franchise quarterback to have his successor drafted when he's that young. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't happen. Right. And we'll go back to the Brett Favre thing. Rodgers was there three years, same situation, same team. That's why it's so different. It doesn't work anywhere else. The only one of those you can work at and say was successful was that one three years ago – Many years ago, Farber Rogers, and you could argue Steve McNair. You know, and that was a different situation because of where he came from, came from Division One AA. So, you know, that's my thing. I just, the lack of leadership's the problem. That's why Aaron Rodgers is mad. He's not mad about about Jordan Love. He probably something he likes the kid. He's mad because he's been put in that situation. He's the he's the franchise guy. Yeah, I think you're so, right. Yeah. I think he knows Jordan Love uh, isn't very good anyway. He has nothing to reveal. Uh, I've heard good things. I've heard really good things about it. But, I mean, who knows? I mean, he, he's basically playing practice two years. I mean, I would look at it this way. You know, the, we've heard these guys say time and time again, after two days, you know if you got something or not. And if after a year they're not sold in Jordan Love, if they were sold in Jordan Love, I think they'd made the trade by now. 
Well, I don't disagree with that, but I also think that I don't think the Packers suspected that Aaron Rodgers was going to play an MVP level season last year. I think they thought that last year was going to be his last season. And then he went out there and wins the damn MVP. And then you can't trade him. Yeah. You know, I mean, had he played like he did two years ago, probably not having this conversation. He's probably already traded. I didn't even think he played that bad two years ago. He took the title game. He didn't. He just didn't play to the level he played this past year. Right. I mean, he just wasn't unbelievable. Like, and, and I'm biased. I admit it. I think that he's the most talented quarterback I've ever seen. And he, he two years ago was his worst season. No, I'm sorry, three years ago was his worst. That last one on McCarthy was his worst season. They were, he was bad that year. I think a lot of that had to do with McCarthy. I think the Rodgers was drawing up plays in the dirt that season. But I think that's what the Packers were looking at. They were going, okay, well, he's not, he's slipping. And then we got a new coach who comes in. And yeah, he has record for a year, but can he continue to do this? Is it Aaron? Is it the system? And then bam, you have this come up. So that's just my thinking. I I don't see this. It's gonna be a divorce at some point. Mm-hmm. I think it's gonna happen in February of next year. One more on Aaron, and then we'll move on. Yeah. Um when you look at Aaron Rodgers at age, what is he, 39? Um he sat on the sidelines there in Green Bay for you know three, four years before he even got a chance. Do you view him as a 39-year-old quarterback, or does he get credited in the bank of sorts for those years he sat out? Should he be viewed as a 35 or 36-year-old quarterback? I know that with with Brady playing at his age at you know 43, 44 years old, that's kind of changed the game a bit as well. But should teams when you look at Aaron and look at his future in sorts, you know, draw back and say that he's not really the age of what he actually is in football terms? That's a good question. Um, I think the difference when you look at Rodgers and Brady is that Rodgers moves around a little more. We've seen him get out of the pocket, makes a few plays. Um, he's not going to, he's going to have to adapt. If you look at, and I'm just saying skills-wise, please don't say I'm comparing these players. Aaron Rodgers is what young John Elway was, but John Elway had to kind of change over his career to being a pocket guy who just could slide. If you watch Brady, he gets away from stuff, not because he outruns anybody, but because he slides very well. He slides two steps, is square, and throws the ball. He does that uh, very, very well, exceedingly well. Aaron Rodgers is going to have to learn how to do that, and he doesn't really do that, and it's not really their system. They like to get him outside the pocket. They like getting him rolled out and in the space, kind of like Mahomes does. So you'll have to – Aaron Rodgers, if he's going to play until he's 43 or 44, if he's going to play that long, and he thinks he is apparently – He's going to have to learn how to play it a little bit differently because Father Time will catch up to him very quickly. Um, you look at these guys. Drew Brees is another one of those guys that slide around. He didn't have the arm. He didn't have the arm strength that Aaron Rodgers does. Frankly, he was Tom Brady. But Tom Brady eludes people, again, not because of his feet, but because of his ability to move around in the pocket. Uh, Dan Marino was very much the same way. 
I think Rodgers is just going to have to learn a little different way of playing these next couple of seasons if he's going to play into his 40s. I, I just wonder, so Aaron Rodgers is 38 right now. He's under contract for 2021, 22, 23. I don't know how you can extend it. And that's, to me, one of those things where it's like, okay, well, what's going to happen when he's 41, 42? I mean, the wheels fall off the bus fast. Look at Drew Brees. I mean, they when the wheels fell off the bus for Drew Brees, they fell off quickly. Look at Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning was saying that I mean, Peyton had the neck injury. That was a big reason on Peyton Manning. They lost a lot of arm strength because of that. Uh, Peyton Manning was one of those guys, again, slide around the pocket a little bit. You never – he wasn't going to out-athlete anybody. I don't know if he can win a foot race with me. But, um, you know, that kind of thing. But I, I don't know. I don't think that some of these guys are going to be able to play that long. They all want to be like Tom Brady. That's one thing that I will say I think Brady's been better at than anybody is to be able to kind of change his career and to change how he plays, adapting well. The only guy that has adapted in his career like Tom Brady has was John Elway, you know, a generation ago. Um, and he played till he was old. I mean, he went back to back Super Bowls. I don't was, but he was in his late, late thirties when that happened. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was because, Hey, he couldn't do the things he could do beforehand. You know, Brady doesn't have the arm he did five years ago. He doesn't have the arm he had three years ago, but he can slide. He can do some things. They can set him up. You know, Rogers is going to have to learn that. Um, you know, a lot of these young cats, Patrick Mahomes eventually will have to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. He can't go out there running around for his life. That's why the Chiefs invest so much in the offensive line. So he doesn't have to run around for his life. Right. You know, Cam Newton's another guy who, you know, all the banging and all the running around. Look how quickly his career has gone away. You know, he ain't, he ain't old, but he's been hit so many times. And his play, he never really adapted to, okay, let me play in the pocket. There's very few young quarterbacks who have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Rodgers – I do think your thought is not off because I think it was two or three seasons. It was at least two. I think it was three seasons he set out. But I don't think that your clock just didn't start. He didn't take the hits those years, but at the same time, he's taking them now. I mean, those hits hurt as much at 38 as they do any other time. Okay. Um, One more thing before we uh, wrap up. Uh, Big Ben came out today, uh, or this week rather, and said that – it was his idea to take a pay cut this year. I'm not buying that for a second. Um, and to reduce his salary to help bring in some other guys and keep guys like Juju and others around and such. And You, you look at this Steeler team, the way Big Ben finished off the season last year, you, you want to talk about old man hitting the wall, Big Ben's there. I mean, he's collided with that wall. Um, I don't think there's anything left there. I mean, the best quarterback on Pittsburgh's roster is not Big Ben. It's Mason Rudolph. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I look at this, Bo, and, and uh, this whole idea that Big Ben's trying to help out the team and all that. No, the best thing Big Ben could have done to help out the Steelers is retire, and he didn't do that. He, he took the money still. I mean, like, let's let's calm down here, Ben. You know, you're, you're, still, uh, you're still way past your prime, still trying to hold it in out there, trying to get every penny. Yeah, I, he he did it for the money. I mean, I, it's not a – he restructured because it's mutually beneficial. I mean, the Steelers couldn't just cut it. The Steelers cap-wise couldn't do it. I mean, that was 
going to cost them a huge sum on the salary cap, especially right. in the cap a year where your debt where the salary cap goes down. But getting him, getting Roethlisberger to restructure, you know, get paid this year. He got a bunch of his bonus money. Um, you know, he gets paid. I don't know how much he's getting paid now. I have to look, but you know, he, I know the rest of his years are void. They're all voided, and he has like I can pull it up here. Yeah, after this season, he's going to have about $10 million spread out over four voided seasons, which will be fine for the Steelers. So it's mutually beneficial. I, it doesn't matter whose idea it was. It doesn't matter if it was Big Ben's idea or if it was the Steelers' idea. Hey, look, most likely it was the capologist idea. It was the guy who handles the cap in the Steelers' office going, okay, how do we figure this shit out? Because the, the Steelers don't want to cut him. Right. I mean, you don't want to cut your starting quarterback. Right. You don't want to cut him. He's been there. He's won the Super Bowl there. I mean, he's been great. He's got a borderline Hall of Fame career. First foul, uh, both. I, I don't know if he's first foul. He'll get it. He'll get it. He's, yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. Um, he's a Hall of Famer in a lot of things. Um, <laughs> so, Big Ben, yeah, he'll get in. He's a Hall of Famer. And that's the thing. You don't want to cut your future Hall of Fame quarterback who's played his entire career for you. So, yeah, make it mutually beneficial where, hey, look, man, you're 39. We'll let you play one more season. We're going to put you on a short leash, though. If you don't play well these first eight weeks, you're about to paint. We're going to have somebody else play. And because we got to know what we got with Mason Rudolph. And then from there, we'll retire your jersey. We'll have a big ceremony for you. Go into retirement. We'll give you what you need, whatever you got to do. Big Ben, I looked this up earlier. Boy, he, he is, this man's cleaned up in some money here. Big Ben has made. $266 million in his career. Woo. Imagine, I can't even imagine how much money that is. $266 million. You know what you do when your boss says you get to your last year and your boss and you are talking about it? You just, and so they've paid you $260 million over that many years. You just go, hey, what works for both of us? Right. That's, that's what. They clear they did it right. Their GM, their star quarterback, they went and got the agent, the capologist, and the owner, and they went and sat in the room and said, what's mutually beneficial? Well, wouldn't that be wonderful if a team in Wisconsin would learn how to do that? Well, think about it. I mean, that's, that's the easiest thing. Well, and, get the and people that, in the room. If you get the people in the room, you're going to work it out. Right. Hey, Aaron, what do we got to do? For you? We don't want you to leave. We don't want to do this. We realize there's some mistakes you think you don't like. Yeah. The Steelers and Big Ben, yeah, they made that work. Well, it, it also goes back to why the Steelers are the class organization of the NFL, why everyone yeah. wants to be the Pittsburgh Steelers and do things the Steeler way, to be a small market team that hasn't had a whole lot of coaches. It's been the same family ownership-wise. They've been so stable uh, as a franchise – this is just a reflection of who the Steelers are. It is a reflection of Art Rooney and all those years that he on the team and passing it to his children and everything that they've done. They've, you know, they've had other people come in and buy parts of that team to help the Rooney family out, you know, when they've had issues there. But, yeah, because the Rooneys own the team and they're the ones who make the final decision. Again, it's got to be one person or one small group that says, we are good with this. It'll make this work. You mentioned the short leash real quick on, yeah. uh, on Big Ben. 
Mason Rudolph's contract is up at the end of this year. Uh, he's looked fine. He hasn't looked like a superstar, but he hasn't looked bad either. The Steelers got to know what they got in Mason Rudolph. He shouldn't cost them too much to re-sign him, but um, I would think that Mason Rudolph, if the Steelers aren't going to give it to him, somebody else will probably give him a chance to be a starter next year. You, you probably, um, if you're Pittsburgh, want to see Mason Rudolph at some point this year. You want to see if that guy has a chance to be your, your next starting quarterback. You know, I'm looking at it right now. He's under his contract for two seasons, 21 and 22. Oh, that's right. Two more years. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a, a base salary of 3.9 million in 22. But I still think you got to play him this year if you have to. If Rod, if Roethlisberger is not really good, I think you do have to go to Mason Rudolph. And it's because 2022 is like a lame duck here. You can't go in there with a quarterback who's in the last year of his contract. You have to look at it as either he's our guy moving forward or he's not. And it doesn't cost them hardly anything to cut him. I mean, I'm looking at it now. If they cut him at the end of next season, it is $1 million on the salary cap. That is nothing. That is a penance. That is less than two, it's less than half a percent of your salary cap. So you need to know, because if you don't know, and then he has a good year in 2022, now you're having to pay a lot of money for this guy. And your fan base won't forgive you if you don't re-sign him. This is the Dak Prescott idea. So if you're the Steelers, you got to know and know now whether Mason Rudolph's your quarterback or not in 2022 and moving forward. Um, if he's not the quarterback, then you have to go move on now. I mean, now at the end of 2021, clean that whole room out and get all new quarterbacks. The other issue, frankly, is they have the worst quarterback room in the division now. Mm -hmm. Whether it's Roethlisberger or Mason Rudolph, they have the worst quarterback in the division. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's saying something. When you have Cleveland, both of your in a division that they dominated for years where the Ravens had quarterback issues, the Browns, the Bengals, they benefited so much of everyone else having their That's own right. quarterback they, You're absolutely right. For for a generation now, they dominated because the Ravens rode whatever hot horse they could find, and Joe Flacco for so many years was just solid. The Bengals were always the Bengals until Joe Burrows come in and saved them, and, and they still don't deserve Joe Burrow. Um <laughs> And then you have the Browns have Baker Mayfield, who's turned into a really, really good quarterback. So, I mean, the Steelers have the worst quarterback in the division right now. And so you got to know, I mean, if you think you're going to be competitive in 2021, 2022, 2023, what are you going to do? Because Lamar Jackson's an MVP. He's going to get paid sooner than later. You got Burrow. You've got Baker. Baker's about to get paid. These guys aren't going anywhere. So, I mean, that you're going to have to play against them, and you're going to have to bring it. I don't know. It, to me, it's kind of a Steelers quarterback situation. It's kind of interesting. And I think that it going back to your original thing, I think that, yeah, if Roethlisberger says it's his idea, I think he's kind of full of shit. I think it really is a mutual decision. Um but at the same time, I mean, all the parties behaved. So, which is kind of surprising when you talk about Ben Roethlisberger being one of the one of the parties. 
right? So, um, but yeah, I just, I think, it's, I think it's interesting to see what's going to happen with some of these quarterbacks. We are in a gap right now where we've got Brady, and we know Brady's not going to be around much longer. I mean, I would be surprised if he plays in 2024. Um, we got Roethlisberger, who's going to be gone soon. We've got Breeze just retired. We've got Rodgers at 38. And then we have this next generation. We know Mahomes is great. I think we know Lamar Jackson's great. I don't know who else we know is great right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's some really good players. I think Baker's good. I think Burrow's real good. I think Justin Herbert's real good. Tannehill. Um, what? Tannehill. Ta- I think Tannehill's solid. I- I'm going to get crushed for this. I think mean, Tannehill's Troy and I don't mean that in his future Hall of Famer training, but I, I think he's a really good, solid quarterback who doesn't make mistakes, who's a good arm, and runs a really good offense. We know Josh Allen's going to be great. Yes, I think Josh Allen is going to be great. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head here. Other really, we got Russell Wilson still. We still got Russ. We've got. I mean, we. Well, we, we ever see like Sean again? He'll be great. Yeah, I mean. He has the physical abilities. We know that. Right. You know, with the Deshaun thing, we talked about this over time, too. And just pay the money, get out of this thing. <laughs> do what you got to do. And then come back with, I'm sorry, and do everything you can. He's got every skill, but now you got to worry about what's upstairs. Mm-hmm. And, that, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, that would hurt anybody. That hurt me to go through something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he's only got himself to blame. I get that. But at the same time, going through that is going to hurt you mentally. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's going to be a little different. I just think we're going to see a lot of change in the NFL in the next few years. It's going oh, to be yeah. interesting to see. These so especially if, uh, if Rodgers does not get traded and next year that quarterback market for Rodgers is going to look a whole lot different than what it would look like right now. A team like Pittsburgh, who has no cap space right now, has a ton of money to spend next year, and they said, come on, get over here. Get to Pittsburgh right now. I mean, yeah. that's how different things are. Uh, if, yeah, you look, if you look at 2022 salary caps, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Some of these top teams, the Colts, I mean, do they really know what they have? Yeah, maybe. No. I mean, that kind of stuff with Carson which we season or two. The Steelers, the Jets have got a quarterback. The Dolphins, I mean, if they don't like Tua, they're going to let him go after the season. Washington, Philly. the Bengals, they got Burrow. Um, the Panthers may be in there for a quarterback. And I'm just going top of the list down who has salary cap. The Raiders, the Broncos, the Bears. Well, the Bears have fields now. The Jaguars, they have a good quarterback now. You know, so you're going to see some teams in here that could really be players. The, the, the market for an Aaron Rodgers would be huge. But it's, it's going to be a lot of teams, but the price is going to go down mm-hmm. because you've used up one more year. Um, you know, someone's going to give them a first-round pick. That's what they're going to get for. All right. It's going to be a first-round pick and the replacement. Yeah. A backup QB. All right, Bo, we're out of time. Appreciate it. <laughs> Appreciate it as always, man. Thank you. Check them out online on counteradvisorgroup.com, OAGKS.com as well. And like him on Facebook, certainly appreciate it. Bo, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us, man.
Hey, thank you. Have a great week. Take care. A few more things before we get out of here today. We're going to have our Town Fulgery Story of the Week coming up in just a few moments. But before we do that, I do want to talk about the College Football Hall of Fame. The uh, nominees have been announced for the 2022 class. And there's so many nominees on this list. Uh, a lot of notable names. Everyone from Reggie Bush to Champ Bailey to Eric Berry. Um, just to name a few, Sean Alexander, Dallas Clark. I mean, there's some obvious ones. Um, but what I want to look at in particular is kind of the Big 12 ties. Um, when you look at Big 12 players or coaches who have a history in this conference, who deserves to get in, here are the Big 12 names that are being nominated for the College Football Hall of Fame. One of those is Michael Bishop, the uh, former Kansas State quarterback, 1998 first-team All-American, the Heisman Trophy runner-up who led uh, K-State to the Big 12 title game after an undefeated season. They lost to Texas A&M. He didn't win the Heisman Trophy, and they didn't win the Big 12, and they didn't ultimately even end up in a uh, BCS game. Michael Crabtree, two-time unanimous first-team All-American. We all know about his catch he had in that game against Texas, one of the uh, greatest uh, games in college football history, one of the greatest plays ever made there to take down the number one team in the land that year. Uh, also on this list uh, of uh, Big 12 ties that we're uh, talking about here is Graham Harrell, who was the quarterback that threw him that pass, who had a great career at a Texas Tech, first-team All-American, uh, was the AT&T All-America Player of the Year and uh, broke a lot of records uh, there at Texas Tech. Uh, you also had Josh Heupel, the national champion quarterback for Oklahoma back in 2000, first-team All-American, Heisman runner-up, Big 12 player of the year, and left OU with virtually every school passing record despite only playing two seasons in Norman, um, a, a hero there for the uh, Sooner faithful there in, uh, in Norman. Also on the list, Jeremy Macklin, who was outstanding at Mizzou, two-time first-team All-American and uh, two-time first-team All-Big 12 uh, performer in uh, all-purpose yards for his uh, first two seasons and uh, broke Mizzou's record for career all-purpose yards. Um, and you go on down the line, Terry Miller, who played for OSU as a running back in the 70s. He was a two-time first-team All-American. Um, and some of the other ones that uh, are listed here as I continue to uh, scroll through here. Kevin Smith, uh, you know, at Texas A&M back in 1991, first-team All-American cornerback. Uh, Roy Williams out of OU, um, you know, 2001 unanimous first-team All-American. And uh, the only coach nominated from the Big 12 is uh, Gary Pinkle uh, from Mizzou, who was the winningest coach all-time at both Mizzou and Toledo and uh, had a couple Big 12 title game appearances but never did win the conference. So, Tom, uh, looking at these, to me, the obvious ones of who should get in that I don't think that there's any debate about. Roy Williams, I think, without question, is – a, a Hall of Famer, that, that he's got to go in uh, representing the Big 12 there. Um, I think Jeremy Macklin has got to go in. I think that uh, you also have to have uh, on this list, I think you go 
with uh, Michael Crabtree. I think he's got to go in for sure. Uh, those are the ones right away. Michael Bishop and Josh Heupel, I think, maybe not first ballot, but get there eventually. Um, and I do not think Gary Pinkle is a Hall of Famer. I know Gary Pinkle did a good job, but they were never great there at Mizzou. He never got them over that hump. I think Gary Pinkle is highly overrated. Those who come to mind to me, Tom, uh, but the Big 12 does seem to be well represented for nominees of this 2022 class. What, what do you make of the uh, Big 12 nominees here? Yeah, Macklin and, and Macklin and Crabtree have to be in. Pinkle, I feel like they just threw in and be like, well, oh, we'll just give you another one on the board. Uh, he's not a Hall of Famer in my book. My, you know, Mizzou was never – like you said, Mizzou was never great. It's like, why is he even on there? Uh, I mean, if we're throwing in Gary Pinkle, might as well throw in David Beatty. <laughs> I mean, not really. I, I mean, I joke. It's like, come on. Um, you know – Hypo, you know, Bishop, you know, may, yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. Uh, I mean, I don't think you could have put it any better. I mean, maybe not first ballot. I think Hypo gets in before, before Bishop. I mean, with the championship and all, and one of the Big 12, and Bishop never winning it. So it's like, well, you know, I, you know, K State fans can be mad. It's, it, facts are facts, and we're not going to cater to you. That's, that's one of the um, things to me, Tom, is, Talk to any K-State fan and how much they prop up that 98 K-State team. They act like it was the greatest team of all time. I mean, the reality is – For them it was. For them it was, sure. But the reality is that they did not beat Texas A&M in that Big 12 title game, that they didn't get to a BCS game. They didn't even win the Alamo Bowl that they were in and choked down the stretch. They choked. Now – you know, they, they invented a whole offense there, that Wildcat offense, and Michael Bishop was phenomenal running that offense and such. They were great. I'm not taking anything away from them. But this is but the, uh, the idea of reality versus facts are two different things when it comes to Manhattan, Kansas. 1998 was a long time ago, folks. And it seems like as we've gotten further out, K-State fans have become more delusional about that 98 team the farther they've gone from being as successful as that team was, the more delusional they've become in, uh, in all these years. And Michael Bishop had a great career, but I'll take Josh Heupel every day over Michael Bishop. Josh Heupel, um, you know, he battled through injuries. Uh, Oklahoma was not a good program when he arrived. And, you know, they found a way. And that guy had so much heart, so much – uh, you know, wherewithal and to, to do what he did with that Oklahoma team and, and go undefeated and win the national title. And, you know, he got robbed of a Heisman Trophy too. Probably should have gotten that over Chris Wenke. Um, give me Josh Heifel every day over Michael Bishop and twice on Sundays. That, that to me is an easy decision here. You, you have to be, uh, you know, your, your head would have to be stuck in, you know, your ass would have to be stuck out in, uh, in, <laughs> Aggieville in a Manhattan to think otherwise if you would take uh, Michael Bishop over Josh Heifel here. I mean, you would think it's like, come on, but you know, it's, it's whatever, you know, K-State fans, they should just be happy. He's on the ballot. Um, you know, there's some other ones that are not big 12. I mean, Dallas Clark's gotta be in, uh, you know, Hey, yeah, obviously. Yeah. I mean, Marvin Harrison, I mean, probably had a better overall, obviously, pro career than college. But, 
I mean, he's got to be in. I mean, I the, you Antoine know, the greats. Of, I think Antoine Randall, a guy yeah. that two positions. Quarterback, yeah. And, and, and really, you say that, Jones, I'm going to hammer it home there for you. I'm sorry. But the man kind of revolutionized using a wide receiver as a quarterback. Yeah. Just a little bit. I mean, he kind of changed the game up. Um, and, and maybe it's because I was so young, but he was one of the first ones that I remember running the, you know, running the wide receiver reverse into a pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we see that all the time. And I mean, I might not be a wide receiver, but we see more of the trick plays. He was one of those versatile players that allowed the Steelers to run trick plays. Uh, I mean, that was kind of, I don't know if it, I wouldn't call it maybe revolutionary, but it was a good time. It was. It certainly was. And uh, the, the obvious ones to me, Tom, are Andrew Locke and Reggie Bush. Um, Andrew Locke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, sure, Andrew Locke didn't win a national title. He didn't win a Heisman Trophy. But from where they were at at Stanford to from where he started to where they finished, he and Jim Harbaugh were a match made in heaven. Um, you know, Toby Gerhardt, too. Toby Gerhardt was awesome with he and Andrew Luck together. He's to me a lock in this Reggie Bush. uh, You know, some are going to try to point to, you know, his, uh, his history of, you know, of uh, losing the Heisman trophy and those wins being vacated and all that, but you can't erase history. We all saw what happened. We all saw how special of a player Reggie Bush was, and he was going to play college football for somebody. Um, if he did not get paid at USC, he was going to go somewhere else and be a very special player. Reggie Bush, don't let the uh, mistakes that he made uh, affect his Hall of Fame status. That was a Hall of Fame player. Reggie Bush, Tom, and now this I, – I, I kissed up to OU fans a moment ago. Now I'm going to – now, now I might slap him here a little bit. In college, Reggie Bush was just as good, if not better, than Adrian Peterson was. I agree. And, you know, I grew up a senior fan um, and was a big fan of Adrian Peterson, but I can say without a doubt, um, Reggie Bush was every bit as good as Adrian Peterson in college. Now, obviously the pros a little bit different, um, but I mean, he kind of just took the, I mean, I guess you could say took the world by storm. I mean, he, he made, I don't know. I wouldn't say made running backs great again, but man, was he a freaking celebrity or what? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, everybody knew Reggie Bush and I mean, Hey, and you know, everybody knew Vince young and, and maybe the greatest championship game of all time featured both of them. I mean, it's like, come on. Um, remember when the Texans took Mario Williams with that pick and immediately everybody's like Charlie Castle, he needs to be fired. Reggie Bush should have been the number one pick. Now, Fast forward, what it's what's it been? 13, 14 years later, and uh, no one e- would even dare think of drafting a running back that high. Right, but what the how what, special he was? I mean, with how good he was, it was just like you know what? I mean, I don't blame you. I mean, he was a special player. I mean, he was he was unreal. He was unfreaking real. And as a kid, you know, we were kids growing up watching him. It was just like. Holy shit. Like everybody that I know played with USC 
on the NCAA game. I mean, he was a cover athlete, so it's like, come on. Um, but not even that. I mean, he was just – he's just incredible. He was incredible. It was – it was – it was – you know, and Adrian Peterson in his own right was that incredible as well. But we're talking college football hall of fame. We're, I mean, we're, we're, we're on the Ray Bush subject. It was incredible. It was a ridiculously incredible. Just watching him was just like, I imagine that's how probably people watch Barry Sanders back in the day, mm-hmm. just in all, just like, you know, if he's beating your team, it's just like, what can you do? What, what do you do? Um, I would say that to kind of wrap this all up, Tom, if you made me pick the two best college football players of my lifetime, I think I would go uh, of just college players, Reggie Bush and Tim Tebow. I think those would be my two choices. Mm, That's tough. There's been a lot. There's been a lot in my lifetime. I, I would probably have to say Reggie Bush is one of them. I, I'm not going to give you a two because uh, it could change. It could change day to day, and I could be a prisoner of the moment. Tebow's got to be up there. Uh, you know, I forget who released it, but they did, like, the top college players of, like, the 2000s, and they put Baker Mayfield number one. Or, ESPN. We talked about that. I love Yeah, Baker. and I'm just like, no, no. Like, Reggie Bush was way more exciting than Baker Mayfield ever was. Right. He he had like a unicorn allure to him. Yeah, it was something. It's something like I've never seen, and I haven't I haven't seen it again. And maybe it's because I was a kid, but I haven't seen that again. <laughs> oh man, that, it was like a magician. Yeah, yeah, that, that's for sure. Uh, that's a good point. Before we get out of here today, time for our Tom Fullery story of the week. Thomas Bridges is here with us, and Tom. You got a little special guest for Tom Fullery this week. Who, who do we have joining us? We got old Bo Connor or Bo O'Connor. So you should just be go go by Bo Connor because you already <laughs> got the old Bo O'Connor. You could just you could just fit it right in there. It'd be like a conjuga- conjugation, you know. Um, we've already heard from Bo not too long ago in the show. Why are we bringing him back? So last was it? Well, not last week, but the week before, I ran off to Memphis on a whim. I had a great time, and you guys called it. I was very unsafe. Um, phone died on Bill Street, and I literally sprinted about a mile and a half back to the hotel because uh, I no one was off of. Everyone was on Bill Street. No one else was off of Bill Street. And as soon as I got off of Bill Street, I decided to run. Um, so made did it back you run down Beale Street? No, I, I hopped off Beale Street and then got, and I was like, okay, I'm on BB King. I just got to make it to Madison. Okay. And ran all the way down BB King. Like, you know, I, I worked off the calories of the pizza I was about to eat because I got there right in time for the pizza that I ordered. That was part of it. The other part, because I was scared. <laughs> but if it's still playing. <laughs> Do play. what? Memphis don't play. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It ain't you know. I'm I'm not testing. I'm All not right. testing the waters. And I was in the Spurs jersey, but we got Bo O'Connor ah. on with us. I was jealous she got to do the emails. I was I was listening because I came back from Memphis, listened to the show on my way back to Arkansas to go float the Buffalo River. 
And I was like, damn, they did the emails and I missed out. And I was like, bring back the emails, get some more emails on. And so that's what we're doing this week. There was a lot of other Tom Flurry stories we could have done, but the emails are so sporadic uh, that we had to go back to the emails. So first off, folks, you can hit us up uh, on the Gmail at uh, TylerJonesRadioGmail.com is where you can find me there. And uh, send me whatever you got, questions, comments, or concerns, or looking for some advice, and you might just end up on Tom Flurry. This might stick going forward. So we'll see. But uh, Bo, are, are you ready? Sure. Okay. Here's our first one. It is. Uh, it is. In, here's the headline of the article, folks. The uh, subject line: I broke up with my boyfriend, and he started a GoFundMe about it. Hi, my name is Amber, and I'm a fan of the show. So I thought I'd find out what you think about my insane ex-boyfriend. Not that I'm biased or anything. We had been living together for a year, and it wasn't working at all. Also, he wasn't working at all, which was a problem for both of us. I bought everything, all of our furniture and kitchen stuff. He bought weed, but that's about it. So when we broke up, I took all the stuff to my new apartment. He said he was fine with it, but then he started this pathetic GoFundMe telling people I cleaned him out, ruined his life, and didn't even leave him a single plate or fork. Uh, yeah, those plates and forks were part of a set, which I bought. Am I wrong to have left him with nothing? I didn't take his clothes or weed or anything. What would you have done? Signed, my ex can go fund himself. Bo, your thoughts? Okay. Hey, I, I need, you know, I need a second here to put this together here. Um, Tom, Tom, what do you think here? Where, where, do you, where do you come out on this one? You know what? I think that if you... If you bought it all, it's not a marriage. We're not going to court over this. It's just a relationship. Yeah. You're entitled to shit you bought. Yeah. If, if he didn't want to buy shit, but, you know, a bong and a pipe and maybe a, a joint roller, then he can have that. I'm, I mean, if this was me in the situation, I'm taking all my shit. Yeah, you can always call the weed man. I mean, you can always get that. So, um... You know, I remember Furniture the old drain cheap. You know, it's not. And it, you know, if you're not married, you come into the relationship. If 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 I'm in a relationship with somebody, I am married. But if we come into a relationship together and you've got some things and I got some things, and then we separated, you take your stuff with you. <laughs> I take my shit with me. Now, things we've acquired together, we need to have a discussion on. Sure. But it doesn't sound like my man here is doing a good job of putting anything on it. And if you hang it, if, if Dode is hanging out and all he's contributing is the weed, you know, you're not doing your job as a man. And because uh, if you were doing your job as a man, you know what I'm saying, then she wouldn't have kicked you out or she wouldn't have wanted to end it. So um, I also think it's a little bit. It's a little bitch ass just to kind of go to GoFundMe <laughs> to get money. And you a man, go work. There are jobs out there, good paying jobs. Take your happy ass up off the couch, I mean the floor, and go get a job. Now, let me say, Amber, uh, thanks for the email. We are glad that you got out of this 
terrible relationship that your ex is a total bum. Uh, and yes, yeah. he can go fund himself. We agree. I love that's that's a great line. It is. Now, what what I'll say, Amber, is I'm glad that she came to us and gave us this story. But at this point, if he's going to do the GoFundMe asking for money, she ought to just go ahead and out him, put him on blast, let the public, his name and everything, tell the whole story. I know that some people don't like to put their business out there, but if he went this far, I would say, Amber, go ahead and take it a step further. You know, what she ought to do is... uh... Yeah, you got I don't know if I put it out there that way. I wouldn't be too cruel, but if he's calling her out by name on a GoFundMe, that that is, as we say in Louisiana, some bullshit. <laughs> and um, yeah, you can't do that. That's just not being a man. Amber, I'm in your corner here, darling. If I got the gavel, you win. He can go fund himself. <laughs> and um, just, just let it go. Just let it go. And anybody that sides with him, well, they're full of shit, too. You know, she should comment or she should donate a penny to his GoFundMe. That way she can leave a comment. Oh, absolutely. And then blast hey, him on there. Amber, we need to get the GoFundMe link. I will go on and fund it with a dollar and put him on blast as well. So send the email to Tyler and he'll get it to me and we'll work it out. Yeah, we'll... Uh... I'll contribute 69 cents. There you go. <laughs> and go from there. Amber, we're, we're team Amber. Thanks for the email. We appreciate it. Uh, here's the next one. Here's the headline. Can I cancel weekend plans with a friend because her new boyfriend is my secret ex affair? Okay. So I'm very lucky because my friend rented a very cool beach house and invited me to come up next weekend. Like months ago, she invited me. And of course I said, yes. Last night, she showed me a pic of the new guy she's been seeing. All I knew previously was that his name was Ben. I didn't know he was my Ben. In fact, nobody knew about Ben and me because he was he was someone I cheated on my current boyfriend with last year before coming to my senses. What do I do? If I cancel on her now, she will think it's because I hate her new guy. At the very least, she will think I'm rude. Do I just go through with the weekend and hope that Ben will be cool? Do I try to break them up so that I don't have to keep reliving awkward moments like this? Signed, Ben there, done Ben. Oh my gosh. The uh, Here's what should happen. First off, she said current boyfriend. So she's still with the boyfriend that she cheated on with this guy. So what's this girl's name? Uh, she has not given us a name. She's just left us with been there, done been. Yes, she has. And I've been done with her um, already. I mean, that's, that's, no, we don't, we don't play that. We don't play that here on the Jones Report. Um, so, you know what? I hope all bad things come to her. I hope she has to, I hope she has to just go through with it and it comes out and been there, done that breaks up her friendship and her current relationship. And maybe her and been there, done that can live forever on a foreign Island somewhere. Now we don't play that. Um, uh, in that case, I think you should go through with it. Just 
so I can see the cringe moments or maybe even hear about them in the next email. What do you think, Bo? Well, first off, she trifling. I mean, that's just... Yeah, there you go. That's a Louisiana word. Trifling. I mean, she just trifling right there. That's horrible. <laughs> now, secondly, you got to go through with it. This is like an episode of Seinfeld. I mean, you got to go through with it and you got to try to play this thing cool because right now you've got to... I mean, she's right in that if she cancels, it's going to be awkward. And then if she never, if the, the boyfriend, the, the dead Ben, if, 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 if the Ben thing takes off, this lady, well, she's going to have to just get over it. So uh, you're going to have to just go and bite that bullet eventually. You might as well just tear the scab off now. Tear the Band-Aid off, get it done. If it's weird, it's weird. If it's not, get through it and you can figure it out. Be grown. You made a mistake. That's okay. Should we all make mistakes in life? But um, yeah, don't try to run away from it. Just take it as it is and do your thing. But um, you can't just run away from this one. And uh, she needs it. It's going to be hard. She can't admit what happened. But she's going to have to uh, be grown about it. Now, so. Bo, I was thinking about this. Her friend here, isn't she going to find out eventually? I mean, yeah. Word gets around, right? I mean, you go ahead and get this out of the way and deal with it now so you don't have to deal with this later, right? If the two girls are that close to friends, they need to talk in advance. If they're that close. So if uh, Ben there, done Ben, if you're listening, if your girlfriend there is your close girlfriend and she understands you made a mistake at some point, well, then you need to go ahead and let her know. That this is the dude that was the mistake because it's going to get awkward all the way around and this shit's going to come out eventually. So just take it on now because you're either going to get your ass kicked now or later. You might as well get it out the way. Now, I would think, guys, now tell me if I'm wrong in this, that this is a situation of, of younger women. I would think... Yeah. Uh, early 20s, because I've been told that, you know, now that I'm entering year 25, now that I've started it this week, that women You're like... so old, Tyler. I know. Women like 25 and older stop playing games. That's what I've been told. <laughs> I would think this is younger, right? I think you're right, but um, I'll just be blunt as the man who's the senior person here. They don't ever stop playing games. The frequency goes down. But they don't ever stop. <laughs> so just, yeah, it's going to have to. If that's your girl, I mean, if, if these two girls are close friends, they'll understand. They will. Yeah. Now, and if, and if they're not that close, then some awkward shit's about to happen. Now, now been there, done been. Uh, you know, she says she's still with her current boyfriend. It's been a year. I mean, he's got to be pretty dumb if he doesn't know by now, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, some shit's about to go down. We need to have a camera crew, and Thomas and I can sit back and do the play-by-play. -play. This could be fun. So here's what we need to do. Here's your answer. You go on the trip. You go to the beach house or wherever it is. You invite Thomas and I. We'll bring the bear, and we're going to come and just observe. Why can't I come? Well, you busy. 
<laughs> so we'll come and observe and, and just kind of lay it all out. And then we'll come on the Jones Report the next week to talk about it. Report back. Yes. Report back. Well, I'm game. I'm ready to go to wherever the beach house is. Yeah, where is said beach house? Do we know? It wasn't said. No. It's got to be Alabama. It's got to be. It's got to be Orange Beach. Well, does Gulf, sh- Gulf Shores, Gulf Alabama. Shores, yeah. yeah that's that's Gulf, Gulf Shores, Shores situation. Or, or Biloxi or Gulfport. Over Boy, it, is, is it even that. considered a beach house if it's in Biloxi, Mississippi? No. It's more no, like it, a trap house. It's like a it's like a FEMA shack. Yeah, I, <laughs> you're right. A Red Cross donation center. <laughs> I thought this, we are going to hell. I'm I'm prepared. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's no way this has South Padre Island written on it. You know, in some instances, yeah, it could. that's a tourist trap too. Yeah, this has got Myrtle. I can see this being Myrtle. Oh boy, isn't it Myrtle? Is it not yeah, Myrtle? Is this, Myrtle? Wait a second. Right is this not a is this not a military situation if I've ever heard one? Oh man, this is got her current her current boyfriend is awesome. a Marine and drives a fucking Camaro. <laughs> or yeah, you're that, a, a Dodge a Dodge he Charger. He, he bought a pickup truck when he enlisted. He's driven it twice in the last six years. Yeah, I mean we mentioned Gulf Shores is not too far from Fort Benning, and Biloxi, Mississippi, is a mis- as a military base, and so is Myrtle Beach. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, this is an East Coast ho fling. That's what this is. Oh yeah, this is the, this is not California here. No, no. yeah. So oh, uh, we better go before we all go to hell here. This has been uh, a great edition of the Jones Report this week. Big thank <laughs> you, uh, Matt Zimmick for joining us, Brian O'Connor as well, Thomas Bridges. Make sure to subscribe to the Jones Report on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Leave us, leave us a five-star review or don't leave us one at all. Follow us on social media, facebook.com forward slash Tyler Jones Live, Tyler Jones Media Group, Twitter at Tyler Jones Live, and Thomas underscore Bridges at TJ Media Group, Instagram, Jones underscore Report, Tyler Jones Live, and it's Thomas. You can find us there. Guys, we will uh, see you next week for our entire crew. I'm Tyler Jones saying so long.